Alright, cool. So we are going, clicking, is a thing blinking, blinking. Okay, we're going now. Howdy folks, and welcome to The Soundboard. It is NeedCoffee.com's music podcast, where we talk about all things having to do with music. Uh, and of course, I am uh, I am Widget Walls. Uh, well, not of course. I mean, that was in question about an hour ago when I still felt like used gum. Uh, but uh, I am Widget Walls, and uh, I am uh, in the chair this month. I drew the short straw, and uh, I will be taking you on a romping adventure along with my friends and colleagues. Uh, we're here with uh, Dr. Tuffley. Hello, sir. Yes, hello, and and no longer in the heart-shaped box. So we have much, lots of space now. Yes, to spread out. We're in the bladder-shaped box, which yes. is, which which does uh, expand. Yeah, it does expand. So there's room to like punch around and stuff. Beer, yay beer, yay beer, and of course we're here also with uh, Professor Rob Levy. How are you, sir? Hello. Hello. All right. So um, we got a few things to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about. Um, Politics, of course, which you should on every good music podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Beatles, which you should talk about on every good music podcast. Every day. Every day. We should talk about the Beatles every day, uh, especially yesterday. Uh, but you should also uh, – I'm. you can hit me later. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> of course, we, we, really, um, uh, we really dug and dug and found a litigation story as well because no music podcast – at least not ours, is complete without somebody suing somebody else. Uh, but on a more sober note, we thought we would get the sober part out of the way because we're not good at being sober. Um, but uh, but all seriousness aside, we have, of course, uh, because there is a month between these things, uh, lost a few people that we wanted to uh, recognize. Um, and uh, it looks like the, the first person that, uh, that we've got on the docket here is uh, Ronnie Montrose. Um, so who, who wants to... Who wants to jump in to talk about this guy who played with everybody? Well, I will, I will say this. Yeah. Um, this is an instance of where I knew someone was important when they died, but I wasn't familiar with their work. Right. Now, can so, you, Rob, can you, can you, for our listeners at home who may not be uh, as, as familiar with Ronnie as the other two people that we're talking about, can you give them the yeah, 50 I, words I, I, list? I'm, yeah. I'm going to punt up to a large part of this off the toughly because I'm hoping he'll know. More of that, but um, he was a guitarist. Um, pretty much worked within the metal loud rock community. And tell me if I'm wrong, and I just please yell. And uh, pretty much a huge influence on a lot of other people that uh, played in that genre, and also just guitarists coming up. And um, he had a pretty uh, fierce battle with cancer, which he lost. And uh, from what I understand, from talking to people that are Guitar people, um, it's a pretty big deal in that um, somebody compared somebody the, the closest uh, thing someone made to me that really put into into scope for me was that Ronnie Montrose was to electric guitar playing what Stevie Ray Vaughan was for blues guitar playing. Wow! So that was kind of a comparison that someone <clears throat> told me that sort of helped me sort of put it into into light. Um, I know he had his own group for a while, and he pretty much was. One of these people that was sort of a session player, that you know, a gun for hire, so to speak. That if you need a good guitarist on one of your records, you got him. And, he was kind of uh, like Glenn Campbell in that respect. Yeah, and I think he, I think he was a pretty big influence on people like Slash and Dave Navarro and people like that. That is, that is kind of what uh, 
I have managed to piece together. Well, well, Tuffley, what, what else can you, because this being metal is squarely in your wheelhouse. Well, uh, he did play on just about everybody's uh, records. He uh, worked a lot with the Edgar Winter Group. Um, worked a lot with uh, with uh, Sammy Hagar, who uh, was uh, the singer in his uh, in the Montrose band. Um, really? Okay. Yeah, because uh, that was Sammy's first band. That was the first band Sammy was in, and uh, he got a lot of songwriting credits off that. Hmm. Uh, so uh, he was in that band. And, uh, yeah, he's the equivalent. And I, like I just said, the equivalent to, to, to Montrose is sort of like Glenn Campbell's influence, uh, as a session player. Uh, cause a lot of people didn't know that Glenn Campbell was a session player and kind of the same thing with Montrose. Um, uh, so, but, uh, yeah, uh, very influential, particularly in the seventies, probably one of the early guitar heroes in metal, I would say. Kind of a, he kind of, Sort of a 70s version of Steve Vai, maybe, or Satriani, kind of, maybe? I don't know. Um, he was in the period, he came up uh, in popularity in the period slightly before Eddie Van Halen. Oh, okay. So it probably would have been in that space between uh, Clapton and Eddie Van Halen. He was, he kind of filled that spot. So. Okay. Well, I, I'm just impressed that, uh, because I, uh, was not as familiar with his work, but of course, looking him up, when you know, you know that you've done a bit of work when on your Wikipedia entry, which is of course always true, um, that the first three musicians that they list you've worked with are Sammy Hagar, Herbie Hancock, and Van Morrison. So yeah. a little bit of range there, uh, in his, in his, uh, abilities apparently. So, uh, but yes, uh, March 3rd, uh, we lost him, like Rob was saying, uh, in his battle with cancer. Um, so, uh, moving on to, uh, to other, uh, bad news. It's bad news when we lose anyone. Um, we of course also lost Whitney Houston. Now, there's all kinds of different things that we could say about this. Let's just <laughs> down put, Rob. Let's put no, that, no, no, no. I put that on the I'm table because, um, no sooner did the dust get off the last podcast, we hung up the phone, and literally this happened like I think the night after we finished the last. <laughs> yeah, one. yeah. But Tuffley's Twitter was perhaps the funniest thing I'd heard on the whole thing. What? So sorry. Okay. <laughs> it was the you know that singer that uh, what, what, the one what that was? died. Yeah, the one that you never listened to that died. Yeah, that yeah. happened. Yeah. <laughs> I retweeted that from somebody else because it kind of expressed my sentiment on that. Yeah. Just because, and and to be fair, Whitney Houston uh, has an amazing range as a vocalist. Uh, and she had a really good voice, came out of the gospel tradition, uh, which, you know, as far as pop singers go now, all you've got is idol and no one, you know, no one really works, works their way up. Um, so she's probably one of the last one of, one of those to come out of that tradition. Um, a really interesting point. Yeah. But, um, honestly, she kind of got stuck in, shall I say the torch song neighborhood, uh, for better or for worse. Um, that kind of became her comfort zone. Um, and she did try a couple of times to get out of that. Um, which, you know, speculation aside that probably had something to do with why she hooked up with Bobby in the first place. 
um, to kind of get kind of a little more of a edge to her or something. Um, but, uh, she never could get out of that sort of torch song area that, that she'd found herself in. Um, and I think career wise, I think that's kind of where she got frustrated to, to an extent. Um, but, but terrific voice, um, not just not someone I listened to a whole lot. Right. You, you and as, as you pointed out with your retweet, most people. Um, yeah. Now what I, um, what I, I, two things that I wanted to bring up about this, because like I said, this, this has been covered six ways from Sunday, so we don't want to belabor it, but I do want to point out that, um, whoever it was, the producers behind the bodyguard musical who chose this opportunity to make sure that the world knew that they were opening later this year. Um, you guys are bastards. I mean, yeah. s- say what you want about whatever you thought about Whitney Houston, but she died. I mean, if, even if, even if you were planning to do it then and this happened, to, it was all a coincidence, which I don't believe far too cynical to believe that. Um, uh, that is, that's just wrong. And, and, and you're bastards. So, so, so who's the biggest bastard in this? The, uh, the musical producers or Sony who, uh, jacked the prices under Grace Jet's albums 30 minutes after she died? Uh, well, I mean, let's put it to you this way. The fact that, um, a record, it, it's, it's so prevalent that the music industry is going to take advantage of this, um, that songs in the music industry have been written about this. Um, in fact, oh, shit. Uh, you, the Smiths. Thank you. I could not think, yeah. well, I knew it was the Smiths, but I couldn't think of the name off of Strange Ways of the song about this, about this very same thing. So, I mean, yes, that's bastardly, but it's a lot more bastardly. That's, that's almost expected. That's like, you would, it would make the news if that didn't happen, right? Yeah. Very, very seldom does a news story occur because something didn't happen. Although I should mention as a counter, and it's not mm. just because we get kickbacks from Amazon, but uh, the next day Amazon actually did a daily deal on that same album mm. uh, for like one ninety nine. No, well there you go. So points, there you go. So, uh, well, I, I know. Well, that does make news these days when Amazon is not a- acting bastardly at times. Um, but, but the other thing that I wanted to mention, and and one of you guys might be able to speak to this, uh, but it it did seem, and I think we may have talked about this on Week in Justice as well. It did seem that maybe Dolly Parton might be a little bit bitter that nobody knows that that's her song. <laughs> is that did did anyone else get that impression from hearing her comments? Seeing them? No, not so much. Not so much to me. Mm. Um, I did question in the Grammys tribute why they, I know that's her, you know, the top selling song she's got. But the first thing that popped into my head, to be honest, when I saw Jennifer Hudson, you know, go into it was, why aren't they doing one of Whitney's songs? Hmm. Yep. And which was kind of the question, I think, which is kind of what Dolly was kind of meaning in her comments, because she was kind of surprised they went with her song, too. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. Because you would kind of figure, if you're going to do a tribute to somebody, and it's going to be the centerpiece of a tribute to somebody, you know, you would pick one of their own songs and not a cover they did of someone else's. Yeah, well, I can can see that, because, I mean, there's there's been uh, lots of covers that, again... Eclipse the original. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's like, 
I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if you were doing something on Elvis and you picked Hound Dog, right? Yeah. So yeah. Now, now, Rob, I must say you've been extraordinarily quiet uh, up till now. Um, well, no, because all good points. Um, the interesting thing going to the Grammys and Jennifer Hudson one. You would argue there's her two probably biggest hits, or at least when when you say Wendy Houston, I know there's more. Um, and I and I to be honest, after she died and they started naming off the hits, I'm like, oh yeah, that's her. Oh yeah, that's her. Oh yeah, that's her. And that's because I just didn't listen to her records. That doesn't take away from her talent. It just means I didn't listen to them. Right. But like, save the best for last. Oh yeah, that's her. You know, it's just I, you know. But if you're doing the Grammys, you're gonna want. A song that Joey Average is going to know, number one, because the American public always plays down to its audience when we watch television and films. Two, um, the two songs they probably could have done were either um, I Will Always Love You, which is just huge. It's a film phenomenon and a music phenomenon, each and of itself. So her legacy with that song and her attachment to it is massive. Second, the only other song you probably could have done is I want to dance with somebody, and I'm not sure Jennifer Hudson has the range nor the training to sort of sing in that kind of a pop jangle record. Yeah, or maybe Greatest Love of All. Yeah, yeah oh, there's another one, yeah. So, um, you know, but also the I Will Always Love You was such a dramatic song, and it also, I think, has, from listening to it, not it's just, you know, you couldn't escape from it for about a week and a half, um, it always has the, it has these moments, I think, in the song, the way it was written, that it, it allows a performer with a good voice to really showcase her voice. So, not only is it a, a, a song where you can pay tribute to Whitney Houston, but it's also a song where if you're Jennifer Hudson and you want to highlight your voice, then that's probably the song you would pick, mm. I, I, w- I would think. Um, and, and it's just my thoughts on it. Um, the, and, you know, I don't, one, I, I completely agree with you on the musical. I had no idea there even was a bodyguard musical. And again, I question just what the hell are they making musicals for? And I'm, I wonder if that'll come up later. But the other thing hmm. is, uh, I, I have another point, but I'll get to that in a second. The other yeah. thing too is that with Dolly Parton, it's like people forget that, you know, Dolly Parton is many things, but she's never been accused of not being classy. Yeah, I know. Um, no. Everyone I know who has met her or dealt with her has just said that she's a top notch person. And, you know, I I don't think she's bitter. I think she's genuine. I just, you know, I would just think that when Dolly Parton goes, she wants to remember for her a song that's hers that she wrote, you know. Mm. Um, no, that makes sense be, when you contextualize it that way. It makes more sense and, than the bit um, that I and, heard. You know, she's been in this business at least five decades. So she's not – there are people that, that would say – lesser people that would say something far more stupid and get their foot in their mouth. Mm. And the amount of people that I would think that at a time when someone died who sang that song, they would one would be sensitive and two would not be that stupid to fall into that trap. That would be Dolly Parton. I just don't think she plays games, and I don't think she's that stupid. Um, because honestly, I don't know where she ranks, but when you look at people that have a musical empire sort of at their disposal, um, she's up there. Yeah, she's up there. I mean, she's built everything she's built in this world. Not by being stupid. Um, sure enough. So I think I will give her a pass on it. And, then, you know, that's the only thing she said. She didn't really follow it up. And she didn't really um, get hammered on it. I think what it is is I think she said something, and a lot of people were trying to make something of it, and it just didn't fly. 
you know. Um, and, you know, Dolly Parton has had a history sort of with Whitney in terms of, you know, when that song went number one, she sent her a congratulation note, you know, and um, she's always been very flattering and complimentary about, wow, that song has been transformed. You know, she's never been bitter from the outset. I mean, it would have been one thing if when that song was number one for what, you know, 10 hundred weeks, she would have said, hey, that's my song. Hey, that's my song, you know. Right. Uh, but I haven't seen any indications on that. So I'm going to give her a free pass on it. Um, well, the other thing is she didn't have to because she's getting the checks. Yeah, but again, it's publishing, so I don't know how that all works. She may have yeah. sold the song, too. I don't know. You know. I think she kept the rights on that one. She uh, she um, she has her she has her own publishing, I think. You know, and, you know, if you're a female vocalist coming up in the world, you know, people forget that Dolly Parton also came from a gospel music background. So if Whitney Houston coming up in the world has a great person to give her advice about how the world works in music, outside of having you know Aretha Franklin, she's got Dolly Parton. <laughs> I mean, she uh, the one. This is one of the two points I want to make. One is Whitney Houston was came along at the right time and was very lucky. Uh, first of all, like Tuffley said, I despite the fact that I didn't like her a lot of her records, and it's just it's just a personal thing does not diminish their quality. It does not diminish her voice. It does not uh, diminish the production. I mean, the thing that Whitney did is that with her records, she got a producer in there that mixed her voice and used her voice well and didn't screw around. Um, so she played the game very, very well at the height of her career. Uh, the other thing that she had, you would think, you know, but having Aretha Franklin sort of as a mentor was not necessarily the baddest thing in the world. Now, and Dan Warwick. Well, I, I I would also argue, though, that she also, at the same time, when she had great advice, she also had not always the best of advice in the world either. Because it, it was, in addition to having, you know, the whole mess of Bobby Brown, who's not a stable influence, I would argue that Dionne Warwick and Sissy Houston are not always, at times, while they are probably great family, not necessarily the greatest career advice. Mm. Um. You know, I, I, Dionne Morris got her psychic network, and Sissy Houston, I think, had a career of kind of battling issues as well. So while I'm, while I'm sure they gave her the ins and outs of the business and that, I'm not necessarily sure that all of the time she had a supportive backing, backing family. And, and, I'm, and I completely am guessing on that. Um, but it just, it, it just seems to me like that was a weird environment. It, it seems like, from from all the press and everything coming out, it just seems like that was not always the healthiest of environment. Is that when she had problems with Bobby, did she have a somebody that could sort of just pull her out and say, "Get your shit together," you know, "Get the hell out." I don't know if she had that. You know, the media has done a very big, good job of convoluting what what really happened with her personal life, and that we don't know if she had family support, we don't know if she had good advice, we don't know if she had good handlers, and I think that you know before we passed a lot of judgment on that. We have to say that the, 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 the sort of arena around Whitney Houston has been, been made so murky in the last couple of weeks since she died. Um, and I know we won't get the drug test or, or, or the toxicology test until after she, after this podcast, but you know, the fact that they almost attributed what the death was before the results came in sort of, so, so it, it sort of gave you an idea that there, there wasn't going to be a positive spin on this. At first it wasn't, 
we've lost a great voice. It was, you know, why didn't anyone help poor Whitney? So it's kind of like she had this backdrop of dissension and disharmony around her that I, I don't know if necessarily that's the best thing in the world. So again, I think the people she was around could have been as bad as they were helpful. But we don't know because that picture hasn't really been accurately painted. That's yeah. my point. The other thing is that Whitney Houston had something, um, as you guys mentioned before, where she came up through the ranks of a gospel singer who sort of paid her dues, sang and sang and sang and sang, and everywhere she sang, she sort of moved her way up, sort of like a player coming to the major leagues through the minors kind of a thing, um, which I think really affected her as a performer because she did not – Two things about Whitney Houston. You can't say she didn't have a great voice, and you can't say she didn't pay her dues. Because being the family of a famous person, she easily could, you know, could have gotten an easy ticket. But she had to pay her dues. She had to work where she got there to get where she got. But the other thing Whitney Houston had that people do not necessarily have anymore is that relationship she has with Clive Davis is pretty incredible. I mean, as somebody who owned, and he, for those who don't know, Clive Davis um, owns and runs Arista Records, which was her record label. To have somebody who runs a label pretty much give you a blank check and carte blanche as an artist to say, I believe in everything you do, you go do it, and I will support you, and no one will stand in your way. Performers don't have that today. So you could argue that, you know, um, all these, all these R&B singers coming up now owe a certain debt to Whitney because Whitney was able to sort of set the framework for how the record deals got done, how the merch got done, how the touring got done, how the performing got done. That sort of got set by her, and part of that was her relationship with Clive Davis because he pretty much said, do what you want. And for an African-American woman coming up in pop music, and even though it was the 80s and, and 90s, that's still not necessarily the fairest game in the world. She got to do a hell of a lot more with the songs she wanted to do, the people she wanted to work with, than probably Aretha did or, or even Dionne Warwick. I mean, she got to pretty much write her ticket. Like, and, the, the, and to be and to be fair, she she actually in the '80s she kind of got off relatively clean, yeah. uh, because you know she her competition at the time was what Madonna, but she was a great counterbalance to Madonna. Yeah, I mean, her was. timing the timing of when Whitney came out too was great because you know she had Jody Watley, you know, or Irene Cara as sort of competition, but she was a nice counterbalance to Cindy Lauper. And Madonna, you know, mm -hmm. because when she came up, we had these pop queens that sort of like were from the street or that sang or that, you know, they also worked their way up in a different way, but they didn't come from a completely vocal tradition. Yeah. And she was a very nice counterbalance to that. So, um, and I, you know, and I, I, I don't understand it for me personally. I've been wrestling with this as someone that loves Etta James, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, these great history of, like, soul singers. Why I just don't catch on to Whitney Houston. I don't get it. I, I don't know why I don't. I don't know whether it's because the records sound too polished, whether it's just, you know, um, the timing of when they came out. I don't know. But um, any way you look at the whole thing, it's just absolutely terrible. I mean, to me, this is a double, this is a double thing because, one, we've lost an incredibly great voice. Um, and person that can mentor people like Jennifer Hudson or Macy Gray, or if Whitney Houston could have pulled aside Lauren Hill and shook her ten ways to sideways, you know. Um, that would have been great. Um, you know, we've lost this. In, I mean, regardless of whether we like our records or not, no one, no one, no one, no one can argue that that woman had 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 
talent. Her talent was incredible. Um, she had her own. She set her. She set a bar for the people coming after her. Um, she had an immense amount of power that a lot of other people didn't have, and she really was a huge and influential person. She also got to enjoy a lot of celebrity that people before her didn't get to, um, because of race and because of the bullshit of 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 the music industry. Now, having said that, the other tragedy of this thing is just that. Um, the media saturation around it was absolutely, to me, reprehensible. I'm just like, let this go. You know, I know, and I know she was famous, but you know, leave her kids alone. Leave, you know, leave Sissy and, and Dion alone. Let Aretha alone. Let this thing play out with her family. Don't turn it into she's not even. You know, the body's not even at the coroner's office, and she died on crack. You know, it's like she was tried and convicted in the court of public opinion with cause of death before anything got done. And it was sort of like this whole, it, now eventually it's changed course, but it, it started, I really got irritated that it was the, the tragedy of Whitney Houston, you know, but this person just died. And any of that stuff is, is secondary to recognizing their talent, their influence and their legacy. I think when a person like that dies, you know, you look at what they left behind, what their impact was, and what their music was, and you leave all that other stuff under the surface, and there's a time and a place for that, you know? And Americans sort of love to get their hands dirty in the dirty working of people's lives and stuff, and I just, the whole thing just left a really bad taste in my mouth on how they treated it. I mean, it was really sad. I mean, the funeral wasn't necessarily just it was her funeral. It was like, is Kevin Costner coming? Oh my God, you know, what's going to happen when Bobby Brown shows up? I mean, it's sort of like, it became this sort of spectacle that was set in the same way that Michael Jackson's death was. It's sort of this like really sick um, sort of thing. And that kind of bothered me. So, well, because they saw the payoff with Michael Jackson and they figure anything that can replicate that must be a good idea. But I, but again, you know, like, like Lynch said with the, with the, with the musical. It seems really tacky and tasteless to me, you know, and I'm not a fan, so I can only imagine what fans of hers think, you know. Um, but again, the big the best thing, I, the best final thing I'm going to say about Whitney Houston is um, an incredible voice, an incredible amount of potential. I think had she lived, there would have been, whether she would have been on X Factor Idol or whatever, there would have been some sort of a comeback, not necessarily, maybe not necessarily as a singer, but it could have been as somebody to bring up other people through the system, but her contribution would have been recognized while she was alive um, had she not died. And I think the movie coming out um, that she's in and some other things really would have made people reevaluate and understand who she was as an artist and what she meant to um, her genre of music. So that's what I have to say about what used to Okay. I hope that all made sense. Uh, I I think it did. Um, yeah. Now now moving on to the 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 final uh, person that we need to talk about is of course we lost Davy Jones of the Monkees, and um, <clears throat> what I would say is that I uh, like a lot of people watched the Monkees as a kid. I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. And, Nickelodeon and, man. And 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 for me it was it was as a kid it was more about the show. And the fact that they were musicians was incidental, kind yeah. of, kind of like the show. <laughs> the fact that they were musicians, they weren't even musicians, all of them, when they got started. But, but the show was actually funny. But no, the show was funny. The show was yeah. was a lot of fun. And then it was only later coming back 
that I don't know about you guys, but my sort of thing was to sort of rediscover the monkeys as musicians and go, oh, wait a minute, Daydream, Daydream Dream Believer, this is actually really good. Oh, Last yeah. Train to Clarksville, oh, this is actually really good. Yeah. Um, and, and then, of course, that leads you to the people who would write songs for them, like Nilsson and stuff like that. So it, it's very, it's a very interesting career, of course, the monkeys. Um, and, uh, and, and so of course we've, we've lost the teen heartthrob of the monkeys. What, what do you guys have to say? Toughly Rob, Rob closed out on Whitney. See, so why don't you go first? Me? Yes. I'm pitching to you. Oh, okay. Sorry. Got, got confused on the hardball. That's okay. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, the monkeys, uh, and particularly Davy Jones, which is interesting because of the four of them, Davy Jones was the one that was obviously not a musician. Mm. Um, he was, he was a singer. He did have a, he did have a career in Broadway. He had done, uh, British theater before that, uh, musical theater before that. Um, but unlike the other members of the group, uh, Davy himself actually did not play an instrument. Um, and you can argue Dolan's on the side kind of barely played drums, but he did know how to play them before the show started. So there you go. Um, it's an interesting thing to look at the monkeys, um, particularly in the beginning where they basically serve the function of being the guys from TV. Um, and I think at one point or another, um, and you kind of tend to see this through the timeline of that band, you kind of tend to see how at first it really didn't bother any of them that, uh, that, oh, you're the TV band. Um, but I think as time went on, I think they started to come to the realization that, okay, maybe this might be a problem later. Um, so I think for one thing, I think the monkeys are, at least for the four of them, are, really revolutionary when it comes to fighting the system to get your own creative freedom. Um, which, you know, they had to go to Don Kirshner. They had to get Don Kirshner out of the loop to have creative control over their own records, uh, which you can argue whether or not they ever really did, but uh, they did go to the company and say, okay, well then we just won't be on the TV show uh, if you're going to do that. Um, the other th amazing thing about this is we're talking about, uh, a band that, for all intents and purposes, went, what, maybe two years? Maybe two, three years tops? Um, yeah. and just, what, even 50, if you look 71 at- kind of? Yeah. Yeah. Even if you look at just the span of the television show, and there were, there were just, those were just brilliant songs. Um, and again, that's a separate argument from whether or not they were a real band. It's, those are brilliant songs. Um, what is it? Neil Diamond and, uh, Carol King and mm -hmm. Nielsen and that. Glenn Campbell and played guitar on them. Glenn Campbell played guitar on, on those records, some of those records. And that, that's, that's, that's just brilliant history just by itself. Um, and again, the, the real band thing, you can go, you can argue that the Sex Pistols aren't a real band. So, you know, I really don't, don't buy too much into that. Um, I do think it's significant in as far as, um, that they did challenge Don Kirscher's control over what went on the records and that they did eventually challenge the television show. 
And that eventually, and I think Head was basically a collective process between the band and the producers, finally just saying, we are sick of this. Um, and uh, basically self-destructing themselves brilliantly. Um, and, and, and it's not that Head's like a good movie, but if you watch it for the self-destruction of a band in the same way that Let It Be is, hmm. it kind of works on that level. Wow. All right, uh, Rob, what have you got? Well, here's, here's the interesting thing about Davy Jones, is that in many ways, he had three careers, which is kind of fascinating. Um, he did do television before he got on The Monkees, which I thought was interesting, because he was in uh, Coronation Street and a couple other hit-and-miss TV things. He was in Zed Cars, which is this British sci-fi show. Right. Um, so he did a little TV. He did win a Tony Award for Oliver. So coming into the monkeys, you could argue, um, and this is why I think there was some friction with him and within other people, that he had the biggest career before the band started. You could argue so commercially, uh, because he'd been, he didn't, he had done TV. He had a, you know, he had a Tony, um, he had a pretty extensive theater background by that point. Well, I and, think that's what got him on the show. Yeah. But I also think that coming into it, you know, oh yeah. If, if you, you could easily say because a lot. Of, one of the things they say is that, you know, he came in with a certain swagger into the monkeys, and yeah. um, that may or may not have gelled well easier. Or as as time went on, that could have been an issue to why there were some issues within the band during the history. Every band has that kind of stuff, though. So we should predicate that by saying that. But his career before. The Monkeys is kind of interesting because, you know, he was an Oliver, because he was in Coronation Street Zed Cars. He also was a jockey, and he loved horses. And um, I do remember uh, you always see him talking about horses and horse racing. Um, and he was short enough that he was could have had a very successful career as a jockey and been perfectly, you know, successful at that, which I think is kind of interesting because sometimes rock stars always have these second careers that are interesting. Um, he also developed a clothing line, which I didn't know, which was kind of interesting he had, you know, sort of this marketing of hip culture before anybody was doing it in the 60s. He kind of did that. Now, the thing that I find incredibly fascinating um, is that the night that the Beatles were, were on the Ed Sullivan show, people always forget that he was on the same Ed Sullivan show with a singer doing uh, a song from Oliver. So the Beatles are playing on Ed Sullivan, and he's on the side watching the Beatles. Nice. And you know, it's sort of like if you have to pick this moment of time in terms of television history, like, okay, this moment that's, in, that's huge and incredible because here you have the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, which is one of the most seminal musical moments on telev television moments, probably the. And then on the side, you have Davy Jones, who later would be in a show kind of based on the success of the, of the Beatles. So I just find that I found that kind of a weird side effect twist of the whole Davy Jones thing. I thought that was interesting. Um, and, and kind of funny. Now, he also sort of had, I think, he is a case of a vocalist having right place, right time kind of thing, because, you know, at the time when he was a singer, uh, he had the looks, he had a decent voice, the British invasion had just happened. So being an English, good-looking young singer at that particular time was probably not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> now, I happen to recall, and I, and I may be wrong about this, he was actually under contract with the studio that was producing the television show. 
Yeah. Which is why he was even at the auditions in the first place. Yeah, they had to find a project for him, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I could I, I could easily see why, you know, he has this, this sort of career, he's put on this TV show, and he's not the singer on all the songs. I could kind of see where that would rub him wrong a little bit, but I also could see where it could be kind of a fractious kind of thing, because when you yeah, look at the monkeys, there's several different camps. You know, Peter Tork is probably the closest pure musician in the band, and Nesmith is very much a good guitarist, someone who understands scales, someone who has um, an idea of, of concepts. Nesmith was sort of the big picture um, guy in the band. He also was the um, sort of, you know, we could do more kind of guy in the band. But he also, I think, in many ways, had a very dry, interesting sense of humor. Like, oh, the Nesmith post-monkey videos and stuff is kind of very silly. And I think he had sort of a, a big a big picture idea of where this could go. Whereas Torque, I think, sort of was a musician, wanted to be in a band, sort of like, you know, we can do more from this. Let's do it. Dolan was sort of the comfort zone in the middle to breach sort of the range of being, you know, performers and musicians. And I think that the band worked because you had that, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting dynamic sort of to study. And the fact that the monkeys were popular for, for so long, you know, and I had seen the monkeys a couple times on TV, but it wasn't until the big MTV push with the monkeys that I think where they got that big, um, they were, it seemed like they were on MTV like every damn day. But, you know, I really got it. And at that point, I was just sort of discovering, um, a lot of things I liked about pop music. And it's like, you know, the Monkees, as you said, were an incredibly great pop band. I mean, the way they picked out songs, the way, um, they sort of carried themselves, the presentation of it, it was everything you needed. As a band, in many ways, it, you, the closest comparison to the monkeys that we can make now on television is Glee, kind of, sort of, um, of what it meant. You know, just like, it's a show where they do wacky music and have crazy adventures. That's, you know, and they really did make a little go a very long way. I think they got, what, 45 years out of it? Um, they got 45 years out of two years of TV show, yeah. Out of two years of TV shows, which is One and a half, actually. One and yeah. a half, because the first season they were a mid-season replacement. Yeah, and Davey Jones was kind of one of these, he was kind of emblematic of the singers of that era, you know, like people like the guy from Herman's Hermits, the English yeah. guy from that. Uh, Peter Noon. Yeah, Peter Noon. And, um, there's, you know, he sort of became this, um, like, you know, there was, you know, you had the Beatles that were sort of like very, um, artistic and sort of, I wouldn't refer to them as highbrow, but you had the Beatles, which were, you know, the Beatles. And then you have the Monkees, and you have Davy Jones in particular, who seems like this teen heartthrob in a way that no one in the Beatles really were in in terms of how they were played up as being a teen heartthrob. You know, it's almost like you are the, you're the looks guy. There you go. You know, <laughs> but it, it's kind of weird. I mean, he kind of got thrust in this position to where, like, you're not, not only are you the singer, but you're, you know, America's teen sensation at the same time. Which the Beatles never had to deal with. They just were just sort of a band, and people screamed at them. I mean, <laughs> it, it, and you're right in that because I did a check of this. You're right in that most of the big hits of the Monkees, Mickey's singing. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think but, "Daydream Believer" is the only one of the hits that Davey actually did the vo- bleed vocals on. Right. And there's an, um, I think there's one other one he sings on too, but that, yeah, but. Um, 
Day Dating Believers is perfect, you know. Yeah. And when you watch how Day Dating Believers presented on the show, it's the closest thing to a modern music video that they had at yes. the time. Very bright. And you really appreciate Jones as a singer when you hear Day Dating Believer. Um, or even Girl, which he sang on the Brady Bunch. You know, like, here's a guy that obviously gets how to work as a pop star. He just hasn't gotten – I can't. what I can't tell is, did he not get his due because of the monkeys and it ruined him as a pop singer, or was he just – a mediocre talent all the time who got into the luckies and the monkeys and got lucky and caught a break. That's what I can't tell because the problem with the monkeys solo catalog is he didn't really have good producers. He didn't really have a good label and he didn't really have good production values for his solo records. So you have to wonder if he had gotten a, you know, a good, decent, um, fair shake out of it. Could he have been a really better solo performer or was that, you know, is he just a theater guy? that made pop records. And I don't want to cheapen his, his, his legacy or anything, but you, you have to sort of look at that. Um, and I think he wrestled with, in his life, um, whether he wanted to be known as, you know, Davy Jones, the singer or Davy Jones from the monkeys. And I think whenever he tried to step away as Davy Jones, the singer outside of the monkeys, he kind of got resentful. That's kind of what I, what I'm thinking on it. Whereas somebody like Peter Tork, for example, really embraces being in the monkeys. Um, Michael Nesmith, even though he's not really doing a lot of music much any day anymore these days and has his own sort of empire to run, he still sort of says, yeah, I was in the monkeys, you know, but he kind of, you kind of get a vibe from, from watching Davy Jones when he went on tour by himself, he'd do these reviews with other sixties artists and he'd sing songs. They, they basically put like, you know, they put him on like a, a package tour with all these other 60, 60s icon people. Yeah. Right? And you kind of you kind of feel bad for him because like well he's there without the monkeys you know what, what's going on here you know um, and that was kind of weird you know it was, it was always weird to see him as an artist not with the monkeys you know it was just kind of like okay the monkeys are here are you sure you want to do this I mean and, and that's again because we've been trained to see him in that context for so long so I think while Davy Jones was a great singer and a great person in a band I think that his potential was never truly either utilized to its full benefit or he never caught the necessary breaks that he needed. And I think that's really a shame. Um, well, which is interesting because, as you mentioned, I just was looking at the first two Monkeys albums, and while he did sing on multiple songs across the two albums, I mean, uh, of course, I don't, I don't remember seeing Peter ever singing, and Mike Nesmith maybe sang on, one on the first album, and I don't think he sang on anything. I, don't think, he I think the one on. I know, Mike. The, honestly, the song I know, Mike, from most most honestly, is probably "Listen to the Band," which is on Head. Right. Yeah. Well, my my point, which being is more is, of a solo <laughs> song than actually a monkey song. But. That that's true. But but my point being is that it's interesting that we, like you said, associate Davy Jones with being with the monkeys so much, when yet really, like you said, all the songs that we know the monkeys for, Mickey sang. <laughs> Yeah, it's just and because uh, Davy didn't play an instrument. Well, I would say was his tambourining that good? I mean, it's just and yeah. and, not, and not to downplay uh, what he brought to the show or anything, but I just think that's really interesting. I can't think of another uh, artist off the top of my head who is so associated with an act in that way that they weren't so well they were integral to, but not musically, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's interesting because from what I remember, and I may be wrong because I haven't seen the monkeys in in, in in a while, 
But to me, it's sort of interesting in that while he didn't do a whole lot on the records, on the TV shows, the film bits, he was more integral in the TV part of it than he was yeah. the band music part. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I remembered. Yep. Yeah, that, that is true. So, you know, is he a guy trying – is he, you know, when he's in the monkeys, is he trying to be a singer? Is he trying to be an actor? Where are they trying to – you know, is it because they didn't know where to put him? You know, because he's – in 1968, the idea of like a song and dance man who could – act was a kind of a weird concept they haven't had that since sinatra right and in pop music they weren't sure what to do with it you know so i'm well, not I really think, sure they knew what to do with them well i think just to, to i i think of the four of them of the four guys that ended up being in the monkeys i think i might disagree with you a little bit i think i i think davy was the one who was painfully aware of what this actually was that's an interesting point yeah uh, of what this actually was, because he was, uh, even though Mickey, Mickey did do some, some acting as a kid, um, and was a child star kind of in his own way. Um, but you know, Davey, I think was painfully aware that, okay, this isn't really, we aren't really a band. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Um, and, and I think particularly, and I think you're right about that, particularly Nesmith and Peter Tork. Um, probably kind of got the idea of, well, maybe we really could be a band. Um, and, and kind of went that route. Um, and I, and I would take it that they were kind of, the two of them were sort of the ringleaders on the fighting, uh, fighting Don Kirshner for control of the band. Um, I, 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 I've never quite heard how that, how that shaped out, but I, but I would imagine they were the ringleaders on that one. Um, I'll also point out the other thing the monkeys are important for is introducing Jimi Hendrix to America. Yes. Uh, because he did open for them on the, on, on their first tour briefly. Nice. God, that must've been weird. Yeah. Um, but he, by the time he had opened for the monkeys in America, he was already huge in England because, uh, that was the point that Clapton and Beck and everybody mm -hmm. were talking him up over in England. And, uh, he ended up opening for, I think the first four or five shows of the Monkees tour, he was supposed to open the whole thing, but I think the the experience finally uh, got out of the door. But uh, I, I think that's interesting. Another point that we can we can we can tag to the Monkees introduced America to Jimi Hendrix. Okay, well let's what well, one one last thing I want to bring it one last grenade I want to throw into the room, so to speak, on this, okay. and then we can move on. Is uh, so uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Chance in Hell. For the monkeys as a group, oh, I think it just—I think it just improved. <laughs> oh, I think the chances. I was of afraid of that. I think maybe Kirshner would probably get there first if he's not already. Mm. Mm, I don't know. Um, as a producer and maybe as a promoter, because um, Graham's in there, why not? Um, but um, I don't know. I, I think I think you're going to have a tough argument with that. Well. The other thing about the monkeys is that I forgot. I mean, to be honest, I love the monkeys. I, I I would watch them for hours, and then until David Jones died, I forgot how much I loved him again. You know, so I think. But when I think of the monkeys now, I don't necessarily think of them as just a TV show. Right. So yeah, and I think the farther they go from the TV show and just you know with the album catalog. People can remember that because there are other people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that had hit records with other people's songs and other session museums playing on musicians well, playing on them. Well, again, so, I've I, I I bring up and I will bring up once again the Sex Pistols were also formed in the same manner yes. as the Monkees. 
and yes. they are in the hall. So there's yes. your argument right there. Yes. Um, but I think the Sex Pistols also had a longevity issue, sort of. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, the Sex Pistols didn't have the shadow of the Beatles hanging over them everywhere they went. Well, the Sex Pistols didn't have a wacky hijinks TV show, although exactly. they would pay money to have one. Yeah. Um, yes, let's see what Sid's doing this week. I- I'm yeah. still upset uh, that there was never a Scooby-Doo movie where the, the Mystery Incorporated guys teamed up with the Sex Pistols to solve Well, I think if the Sex Pistols happened today, you absolutely would have had that. You know, the yeah. other thing, two, two <laughs> things, one other thing about the monkeys, and I'll get back to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that environment that they came out of with the TV show and making the records, that never they never would have had that today. So they came around at the right time, very fortunate. And even though they were in the context of a created program for them and they had to fight to break out of it, they still had a better shot than most of the other people around. Now, getting back to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I don't think you hold the, you don't, you hold, um, the fact that they were a preformed band against them. I don't think that you, uh, hold it against them that they were only active for three years. I think you, you just sort of, Take, take their body of work in general, because lots of other bands have, you know, performed with, with another band behind them, you know. But you listen to Last Train, Last Train to Clarksville, What Am I Doing Hanging Around, um, Daydream Believer, you know. You, you go through all of the Monkey song catalog. I mean, it's literally, you go through like a Greatest Hits Monkey record, you go, oh yeah, oh that's the Monkeys, oh yeah, that's the Monkeys, oh yeah, that's the Monkeys, you know. Now, the legacy now- of, of songs is, is pretty strong. Now, the so, argument against that, and I'll go ahead and point it out, is that the band doesn't have to be there because the songwriters already are. Yeah. Most but of the other bands most, already in. Yeah. The most of the monkeys songwriters, most of the people who wrote songs for the monkeys are already in the hall. Therefore, we don't have to put the band in the hall. Yeah. But I think, again, I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen on a week here, though. You know, um, because at some point, you know, again, they're going to run out of people. That, that there's going to be years when there's just the, the people they can put in are all crap. Yeah. I or think don't have, have a strong legacy, you know. And every year or two, they like to put in, quote, unquote, legacy bands in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. So I think when they get to that point, um, I would argue on many fronts that the monkey should be in before Guns N' Roses. But that's just me. Or the Chili Peppers. But, but, but admittedly, um, I think both you and I have a list of bands that should definitely be in before the Monkees. Uh, yes, and I, I think we've uh, uh, we have we've beaten that with a stick on this podcast before. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think we've all been I going mean, around going, "What the fuck, folks?" Which would you put them in? Yeah, I'd put them in. Okay. Yeah, uh, and, and and my my thing is uh, because and and not to belabor this because, like I said, we've we've gone over uh, the Hall of Fame and we like to beat it uh, like a pinata. But um, but no, I, I think that uh, musically, like you said, there's nothing nothing odd about using studio musicians, about having other people write your stuff, um, and just from a uh, you know from a from a popularity music awareness point of view, musical history point of view, um, you need to put them in uh, because and and by doing so, you you not only get the you know you not only get the band, but you get Mike Nesmith in, who you know for being sort of behind MTV uh would, would even if he wasn't in the monkeys probably arguably could have deserved to get in on that yeah uh, so i think yeah. i think hell yeah put them in yeah so well and it's going to be it's going to be one of the sad tragedies and when they go <clears throat> in the three of them will play you know yeah um 
because you could argue that they could still tour without Davy Jones and still do two thirds of their catalog. Yeah, you know? that's true. But it's not. It would have been nice to see him in, see him, see all of them. You know, one of the things that bummed me out is I saw the reunion tour and it was just the three of them. You know, and it felt well, kind of hollow. Did, well, they did do one reunion tour briefly that was all four of them. Yeah. Um, and I believe they actually did an album. What was it? 1998, I want to say. Justice, yeah. With Justice, yeah. And, uh, um, that, uh, and, and I think they don't, and I think Mike has occasionally come out and played with them, but not yeah. toward. I think it's kind of like he'll, as his schedule of doing stuff permitted, he would. Yeah. And yeah. again, of, of the four of them, he really doesn't have to go do that. So, you know. He can fit it in when he's got time. So I mean, he, I, I would, I would think that to him, it's probably more of a hobby. No, it's probably more point. fun. It's, yeah. it's more like letting off steam, you know. Yeah. You know, um, we should mention too that for those who don't know, Michael Michael Nesmith's family invented liquid paper, right? And that's yeah, he runs that sort of empire with liquid paper and a couple other products and patents and things in addition to he does have his own production company yeah yeah so all right so i want to hit some news stories real quick before we get to the big topic and uh uh first up uh we have a politics update because as i said (laughs) you want to talk about politics on a music podcast um but you've got uh the rush limbaugh show that the band rush wants to get off um and apparently not just rush but uh for those who have Peter Gabriel as well. For, for those who haven't been keeping score, and I wouldn't blame you if you weren't, um, basically, <laughs> Rush Limbaugh has been uh, firing off at the mouth to the point where uh, he is losing sponsors uh, left and right. People are He's bitching getting about dropped. Him. He's getting dropped. And um, uh, you've, you've got people like Rush who are going, you, wait a minute, you're playing our music behind you acting like a douche? What the hell? So, uh, uh, so, so very quickly, I want to see if either of you guys has a comment on this. My, my whole thing is, I, I wanted to ask this. So it seems like there is a, yes, you pay a license and you can use my music for stuff for background or for playing on your radio station. But apparently there's a line you can cross with making it part of some political thing where you can then go, Oh, hell no, you don't. Is, am I? I mean, that's what I seem to see in the Rush article. Um, I think there's some performance rights issues when okay. it crosses over to if you are presenting the performance, that's one thing, and that's a different set of royalties and permissions. Right. If you are including the song as background to, say, a, you know, like a movie or a television show or a work of fiction, the artist has a little more control over that, how it appears and how it's being used, if I understand that correctly. Am I right about that, Rob? I think so. Yeah. So in that case, if if they were just if if it's something like, for example, and I think the best example, particularly for the Rush Limbaugh show that I can think of, is the Pretenders. Um, the the song from the Pretenders that's used is not actually used while Rush is speaking. Mm, okay. So let's say if Chrissy Hyde went and said, "Pull my song off the show," legally they don't have to because as long as Rush isn't talking over it. They don't have to pull, you know, my city is gone. Right. Uh, from, from, from the opening. However, in the Rush example, in the Rage Against the Machine example, 
in the Peter Gabriel example, he is, in fact, talking over their music and sending a specific message. Right. So it carries over into that whole other works permissions, which they can then go and go, then they can come back and say, okay, you need to not use my music anymore. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. All right, Rob, did you have anything else on that? or No, I okay. just, you know, again, I have to wonder, though, at some point, um, does the artist license the music or does his label? Meaning, you know, I, if I, if I, for example, had a hugely immense radio show like Rush Limbaugh and I were going to use some kind of music as a music bed, I would probably go to the artists and say, hey, can I use your music? That's just me. But if he doesn't, then, you know, do they, they don't probably contact the band. They probably con- contact a label or a merchandising department or licensing. So meaning the, the, these days, the way the songs are done, the, the artists probably don't have much of a say about it until they find out. And then when they raise a the stink, then it stops. So this is, I think, a case where somebody who likes the band or thought it would be fun, you know, went ahead and sort of like, okay, we're going to use this until they say no. And then they say no and they stop and pull it. I think nine out of ten times when this comes up as an issue, that is what it is. Okay. Um, I just think the way that the way the wheels of the industry work, it seems that way. Um, there might also be instances where the band sort of decide to say, well, you know, we'll gladly take the paychecks, but then when someone complains, then we'll stop. You know, it could be an issue like that, although I don't think Rush is, is in that sort of a boat. Um, this type of thing doesn't really surprise me. Um, you know, I totally understand why any artist would not want to be associated with someone after things that they've said like that, you know, particularly someone like Peter Gabriel. Um, yeah. And, and, and Rush. I mean, there, there comes a point when you just sort of like, you know, you jump off, you jump off the Titanic rather than let it sink, you know. Um, and in this particular instance, this is a train wreck and nobody wants on it. Yeah. Um, so even if it was well intentioned, even if, you know, hey, I'm generally a fan of their music, you know, they're, thank you very much. Here's our check. Goodbye. You know? Yeah, seriously. So, but I, I think the, the core of the issue isn't necessarily the politics. It's the, at what point does an artist get to decide where their music gets licensed? Some artists, I think, have a royalty agreement in there where they can do that and some don't. With Rush, that song may pre, pre-exist such an agreement or whatever. You know, you have to wonder, you know, like any time a Beatles song gets placed right now, someone has to at least go to at least George and Ringo and have to let them know about it. Yeah. You know, and I don't think every band has that luxury. So right. that is what I think we're dealing with here. Well, except um, if you're the BBC. Yeah. But I, I think that's sort of what we're dealing with. And I think that, you know, I can completely understand why Rush would want no part of this as a band. Um, and, you know, it happens over and over again. We're sort of bands are always used for political campaigns. Or, yeah, we've talked about that before as well. Stuff. Yeah. And you have to wonder, though, at what point are musicians just going to say, uh, kids, if you're in a band, you know, make sure you control where it gets licensed. Or at what point does uh, – do, do they sort of find a united front as music artists to put a stop to it, you know? Um, because it's a recurring problem, you know? <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I don't want to dwell, dwell on this too long, but, it's you know, it's idiocy again that we – even have to deal with these bands having to pull their music. It never should have gotten to that level in the first place. Right. If you want to use creatively my product or my image or my music or my sound, I should probably know about it at the onset and not freak out when it pisses off half the world. Yeah, you would think so. So, 
that's okay. just kind of where I'm at with it. That works. Um, now, now, since you brought up uh, the Beatles, let's just let's segue. Oh, and we'll pretend. I tried to do that for you. Thank you so much. Uh, the nice slow pitch from uh, from Rob there. Uh, yeah, apparently Paul McCartney. Uh, Beatles update now. He said, ripping off the bugle because it's funny. Um, Paul McCartney has pulled his music from all of the digital services like uh, Spotify, like Rhapsody, and um, which is interesting because I noticed that the uh, the article that uh, that that you guys sent over um, when they they had a uh, they went back and found an interview with the guy who's uh, who's in charge of Paul's label at this point, uh, Concord, mm-hmm. saying talking about how music subscription services were so crucial and yet <laughs> it's now been pulled so i mean my uh i want to get your guys take on this but my thing is it's like at this point i guess we, we talked about this a bit before but at this point it's like i don't know if anyone who's not a mccartney fan cares because uh, and and i say this as a mccartney fan as a huge beatles fan but my thing is if you are a McCartney fan, then you own the albums anyway. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that you're losing out on is people being able to listen to your stuff and discover you. Because uh, we've talked about, to in great painful detail, what Spotify does to us music junkies. Um, it's basically like giving, a, you know, an actual drug junkie, a, here's a drug buffet, all you can shoot. I mean, it's just like ridiculous. <laughs> so, so my, my, do you, I mean, do you see this as, being positive, neutral, uh, what what do you guys see? Rob, what do you see? Well, it's almost the opposite of the Rush situation. It's almost an artist, I think, wanting, or an artist or the people behind an artist wanting to have absolute control over the money. I think the Beatles, I think with the Beatles, I think that there's this weird culture with, with the Beatles and their, and their musical legacy and that for so long when Michael Jackson owned the recordings, they never sort of controlled who got what and where all those songs went. And I think it's almost to a point made them, everyone in the Beatles camp, fanatically determined to control everything about their catalog. And I think any technology or any sort of uh, new thing that comes along that puts it out there in a way that they can't, you know, physically understand the, the old school concept of sell a record, buy a record, I think sort of alarms them a little bit. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing because, like you said, if you like the Beatles or like McCartney, you're going to want to hear it anyway. What I can see, though, is that it does open the door, and this might be why they do it. If McCartney pulls all his stuff and the Beatles pull all their stuff, then people that have bootleg recordings or demos or old existing recordings can't also put that online, from what I understand. So this may be an attempt to sort of control more of that market that it is the real market. Well, because let's just let, let me just add the word legitimately in front of the word online. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I'm I'm grasping at straws because I'm trying to understand as a business person why you wouldn't want to get your product out there. I mean, as from a marketing standpoint, you know, the Beatles I understand don't really need marketing advice from me. But <laughs> <laughs> um, however, if they're interested, um, <laughs> how the just, how the Beatles it, went wrong? A thesis no, no, by I Rob Levin. Yeah, they could, they could have been so much better. <laughs> yeah. um, Pete Best never should have left. Um, 
No, no, no. But the point is, I, I just don't understand it. I mean, yeah. looking at it from from just a business point of view, not necessarily a music business point. Of view, from a business point of view, you want as many people to see your product, get as much exposure, like you said. I don't understand this at yeah. all. Well, uh, so there has to be some behind the scenes mentality. So I start thinking, what's going on behind the scenes? What's right. causing this? Is it also to if they take all the stuff off Spotify and all the other sources, does this somehow give them better posturing if they go after more money from EMI, things like that? I don't know. I, I'm, 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 I'm grasping. Well, does it have something to do with the Starbucks deal? Because isn't his record sold in Starbucks? They are, yeah, because Concord yeah. does the music Starbucks label thing. Um, so does it mess with that? I don't know. I mean, it could be a, some intangible weird thing that we yep. just don't know. I don't well, know. Well, toughly, uh, toughly jump in. Do you have some more straws that we can grasp at? Well, I think part of it, I don't know. This is just a guess. My question would be, is it Paul or Paul's or the people representing Paul doing it? Um, because Paul has always seemed to be very savvy about these sorts of things. Um, uh, because I remember, I remember in the heyday of, and this is the, uh, this is the thing I think we were talking about in the heyday of when the Beatles sued Apple, when Apple sued Apple over, you know, use of the name. Mm. Um, I seem to recall that as an argument in the court case that Apple had argued that Paul McCartney had routinely given, uh, his, his, everyone who worked on his tour iPods for Christmas. Um, and things like that. Uh, so, so Paul has always come across, at which, least to me, as very... Which sounds like a shit argument. Can I just say that? <laughs> I'm not well, sure what yes, that has to but, do with anything. Yes, but... <laughs> But, uh, but it always comes across as sort of a, a more, a more savvy kind of media person on, on that end of, at least of the Beatles. Um, the other thing that I would think of is, um, I seem to recall he had a new album that came out, uh, a couple of, uh, like a month or so ago. Yeah. That wasn't very well received. Right. Um, and I think partly that this may have more to do with the foul reception of that record mm. than let's pull the catalog down. Um, although that has happened because I did a check on Spotify this afternoon. The only, the only original Paul McCartney, uh, recording that you can currently find on Spotify is Live and Let Die. And the only reason that is is because Paul doesn't own it. Right. Hmm. Oh, there you go. Um, so um, I, I'm I'm curious about that. So my question would be: One, is it actually Paul, or is it the record company, or is it Paul's management? Uh, and yeah. two, and, and two, the other question would be: You know, I think it has more to do with the reception on uh, the reception to Kisses on the Bottom than really anything else. And it could be because. And that's why I go back to the record company. It could be record company focused because the record company has determined the audience for that particular album was not the same audience that would be on Spotify. So there could be a correction that they had only meant to pull the Kisses on the Bottom album out and not uh, not Band on the Run and um, I think maybe Wings Across America, which was the only one. Paul's stuff, to be honest, wasn't readily available on Spotify to begin with. Um, cause I think it was only two albums. I think it was only the two reissues to begin with, uh, that had come out from Concord, uh, which I think was mostly banned on the run. And I think, uh, I want to say the Paul McCartney record. Mm-hmm. Not sure about that. Yeah. But, uh, I think there are only two of the solo albums that were actually on the service to begin with. 
so they may have determined it may be a record company thing where they just determined it wasn't worth the trouble or I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, but I mean, the album, the Beatles catalog is still exclusive to Apple. Uh, so you can buy it from there. And, uh, all of Paul's records are available elsewhere. So, you know, in Starbucks, really, in Starbucks. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. The strategy is, I guess, if you really want to hear Paul McCartney, you're going to buy it anyway. So I guess that kind of links back to what you said. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have to wonder if they're driving this somewhere, you know, is there a company, you know, that's sort of saying, you know, you really can't sell your records here and there. I just, because I, I, I don't see Paul McCartney as being, you know. Well, I think evil. the other thing is, <laughs> I, I think the other thing is, I think as far as the strategy of selling records at Starbucks, um, and exclusivity and things like deals with just Walmart or just Best Buy, it doesn't actually produce record sales in large numbers for that artist. Yeah. But it does produce sales that are more, I guess, mon- of monetary interest for the artist. So they don't move as many records, but they make more money from moving fewer records. Now, does McCartney own part of Concord, though? I mean, if it's part of his deal is, is, is ownership issues, then this kind of makes a little more sense. Yeah. I, I think he owns the tapes and everything, but I'm not sure as to what control. I think Concord is the distribution end. Okay. So um, they would they would have a little say on where it actually ends up, and anything outside of Starbucks, I think, is the uh, is basically the rule on that so far. Because I remember, I remember the uh, for different tact. I remember that there was a Sonic Youth Greatest Hits album that was released through Concord and Starbucks um, that was out very briefly because it was, because it was the window near the end of Sonic Youth's uh, Matador contract uh, that they were allowed to do that. Yeah. But I mean, people forget that's a, I mean, the Starbucks thing here doesn't seem like that much, but it's a worldwide thing. Yeah. Right. So I think that there's more money in a world market with it than there is a national. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. All right. So, uh, also in, uh, because we, we have a tendency, we're, we're, we're hitting all the greatest hits. It's the greatest hits soundboard. Um, uh, we have a band that is reuniting. No surprise there, except it's Black Sabbath. So they're kind of reuniting. Not really, sort of. So, uh, so, so the deal was, uh, they were getting together. The original Black Sabbath guys were getting together to do an album and then they were apparently going to do a tour. And now apparently they're just making one appearance. Is that pretty much? I think Where we stand with it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, my question is, is the album still happening? Because the article that I was looking at never said if it had gone from album to tour to show. And that was it or what? So apparently well, apparently, the rest of the Sabbath tour that they were uh, talking about is now Ozzy and Company, which would make a as, great as television heard, show. I think the album is kaput, too. Ah. Now, yeah. I, now, now I, I was going to, for a second there, I thought you were saying that was the title, but... Kaput two. I would the love. Sequel. I would love for the album title to be called Kaput. That would be nice. <laughs> so I mean, uh, it's. I, I'm just. I'm sort of surprised. Do you think they're they are they don't need the money yet, and that's why they haven't got? Because all these bands get back together. I swear to God, every single band that we bring up on this podcast or Weekend Justice, we look up up on Wikipedia. Oh, they just reunited like three months ago. Oh, they went on tour in 2010, and we didn't know about it. 
I mean, uh, this is, I'm thinking it's a matter of time on this. Don't you guys, wouldn't you guys yes. agree? Any band that was active between 1984 and 1992, definitely reunion. <laughs> yeah. What were you going to say, Tuffley? The original Sabbath has always had a history of near-miss reunions. I see. Um, they have actually done it, I think, a total of once um, for, I believe, a total of five shows uh, during an OzFest. Mm. Um, mostly, I think what has happened is the the other... Uh, the basically Sabbath minus Ozzy has had a better track, mm. a better track record. Um, and the only reason Sabbath minus <laughs> Ozzy is no longer a unit is because, uh, Ronnie James Dio is no longer with us. Uh, because, um, the only problem is they couldn't tour with the Black Sabbath name because apparently Ozzy has somehow owned it now. Huh. Huh. Um, okay. So here's the interesting thing about Sabbath. Basically, the thing with Sabbath and, the uh even the Ronnie James Dio lineup was that they were both managed by Sharon Osbourne. And we're all going, oh, oh okay. Yeah. So I was doing uh, it internally. Yeah. So they were all managed by Sharon Osbourne. So um so so obviously the terms are going to lean toward Ozzy, let's just say. Um <laughs> Um, so I, I think, uh, particularly in the case of the drummer that bowed out, um, there are obviously some health issues. Um, there's also just the issue of how is this being billed? Is this actually being billed as Black Sabbath? Are we doing Ozfest again? Um, I know some people weren't particularly happy with being billed as, oh, this is Ozfest. Oh, but Black Sabbath's there too. Um, so I, I'm sure there's some sort of billing about it. Um, there's also the thing that really, you know, all of the guys in Black Sabbath don't get, you know, equal billing or equal royalties or, you know, any uh, love. Um, basically because, you know, they're remembered the honestly, and to be completely honest about it, okay, the period of Black Sabbath that if you went to anyone that they would actually remember, it's not going to be Ronnie James Dio. The majority are going to remember, yeah, Black Sabbath was the band Ozzy was in. Um, so, you know, that, sorry guys, that's kind of the reality of it. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think there is a problem with whether or not, you know, it's, it, they're ever going to say it. I think the pro, a lot of the problem has to do with, uh, a lot of the problem has to do with Ozzy. Um, whether or not it is actually Ozzy. Um, because you got to remember, you know, they did fire him. <laughs> they did originally fire him from the band. So, you know, yeah, f and one angle you can kind of look at it is, oh, so yeah, Sharon's getting, Sharon's getting hers for, for Ozzy. But, um, I don't know. Um, but, but honestly, I think part of the, the Black Sabbath thing is probably, uh, the, the deals that, that haven't haven't or weren't being made. So they just decided to turn it into an Aussie tour. And yeah, I think the record's kaput. So. Well, there you go. Uh, speaking of kaput, sorry, I'm trying to transition. Um, Ooh, that was good. No, thank you. Um, so, uh, Brett Michaels, it's because we can't have a, <laughs> a podcast without talking uh, about litigation. Keep on coming. I know. Um, apparently was, now I have not seen the video of this, but apparently he was injured. Uh, during a performance from, uh, at the Tony's in support of Rock of Ages. 
um, where basically look, a, a piece of a set hit him in the head. I remember seeing it on TV and going, did that hit him? <laughs> well, but, yeah. yeah, so so uh, basically he's suing because not only was he injured, and he says that the Tony people were negligent in safety, um, but also they they had the opportunity to not broadcast that bit, and they couldn't resist. Uh, so it basically went viral around the world, Brett Michaels getting hit in the head. Now, I again, I have not seen the video, so I don't know how serious this was, but whenever I think of somebody involved with music getting hit in the head, I always think of Curtis Mayfield, and I think, this can be serious. So all joking aside, you can get your ass hurt. Yeah. Um, has, now, you, now, Rob, you said you couldn't even tell if he'd gotten hit. Tuffley, have you seen it at all? I actually saw it live. Um, I was not watching the Tonys. Uh, I was just flicking by. I actually, it's one of those things where you're flicking by on the television yep. at the precise right moment. Wow. Uh, yeah. because, um, because it was, uh, I think it was the opening medley for the Tonys. And, and yeah. you did that with Jack Ruby as well, if I remember correctly. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Okay. And, and I've been scarred for life, which yep. is why, uh, which is why Robotech became so popular in my life later. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nice. So, back to Brett Michaels. Yes, please. And his credibility. Yes. Which, by the way, can I say, Brett, you really can't sue about your credibility. You were in rock. You were in Rock of Love, dude. Sorry. Yeah. And besides that, you were in Poison. You don't and get porn. to sue. You don't get to sue for credibility. And l- let me just say, let me just say, when Tuffley says to somebody from Hair Metal, "You have no credibility," that has a lot of credibility to me. Yeah. Dude, you were in poison. You can't sue for credibility. Um, but I, I did see it live, and what had happened was um, they had actually gotten the band to perform, uh, and the band was, I believe, performing live, um, which I think maybe the Tony people weren't quite familiar with having rock bands on their show, but usually they don't do choreographed dance numbers that they know. I, I don't know. Just a message to the Tony people. Uh, rock bands typically don't do that. Um, so apparently when they got done with the performance, um, 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 Bobby Dahl and Ricky Rocket, uh, and, uh, DeVille were on the riser because they, I guess they had figured out that the backdrop was coming. Brett bowed to the, to the crowd because that's what lead singers do. Um, again, Tony <laughs> people, you should have, you should have recognized that part of it. Uh, so, so Brett Michaels was waving to the crowd and bowing and stuff. And then he missed, apparently the, the, the Tony argument is that he missed in doing that. He missed the cue to get back behind the backdrop that was coming down for the next, next part of the medley. Right. Okay. And, uh, apparently while he was turning to go back to the band and the riser, as this thing was coming down, this thing was coming down and clocked him in the head. Hmm. Okay. And this occurred on live television. Um, and the, the argument I believe from Brett Michaels's camp is that, you know, you have a seven second delay, you actually, which is now a, I believe a 20 second delay now. Thank mm-hmm. you, Janet's boobs. Um, a 20 second delay that basically means they could have gone to the next camera shot, which I believe was, was, was the, was the, the, the performer for the next song that was on the other side of the stage. Uh, so they could have just cut to from the end of the Poison performance to the beginning of the next song and make it a seamless transition within the delay time. 
Yeah. And can I can I just jump in and say for because I was confused for a second that when you said thank you Janet's boobs, Janet's boobs did not actually hit Brett Michaels in the head. It was indeed a piece of backdrop. Actually, if that had happened, I don't think he'd be suing. Um, I I don't. I'm 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 sure it's not the first time he's gotten hit in the face with boobs. (laughs) No, no, probably not. And again, dude, you're poison. Stop suing for credibility. Anyway. Yeah, I so think the anyway, fact that's... that you wrote Unskinny Bop allows you to get hit in the head at least once or twice. Yes, yes, wow. I believe so. Um, so, so yeah, that's 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 what happened. Well, but and my thing is, I mean, I understand about the cues and whatnot, but I, you keep saying Tony people should have known. Tony people should have known. I mean, of of all the people to not to to be able to look on stage and go, don't do it right now. I mean. <laughs> Of all the people to know how that works, the people who work on Broadway should know how that works. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, also- now, granted, now, granted, let me just throw this out: is is that maybe the people who were working on the Tonys at that point went on to do Spider-Man: Turn Off the Dark? I don't know. That could be true. I don't it also know. Could be that he was so. I mean, I could easily see this going the other way, just to play devil's advocate. Of course, I completely agree with you that it's the Tonys. Um, it could also be too. That he comes in there, he's in a band, he has a sort of predetermined idea of what his importance is to the telecast. He may not have been paying attention to, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah I know about staging, I know. So he may not have known there's a difference between blocking as a musician and blocking for the stage. Right. Well, you my know? other, my there, argument. There, he easily could have gone into this with this sort of like, listen, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, you guys just, just go move the lights. You know, and, I could easily see it being a case of that as well. And what I would agree with you about, and, and the reason I would agree with that theory is because, um, that, uh, that the other guys that, uh, Bobby Dahl and CC DeVille actually got on the drum riser at the end of the performance, knowing that it, to me, indicated that at least the band were aware yeah. that, yeah, okay, there's a backdrop that's going to come down. And you might have um, thought they're not going to move that backdrop as long as I'm standing there. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I, Brett Michaels. I, I mean, I think entering the mind of Brett Michaels is a rather dangerous thing, Mr. Levy. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, you have a, cred- I mean, you're, you're right. You have a credibility issue when you're like, okay, this guy is selling his sex tape for money. He's on, you know, apprentice, you know, celebrity apprentice for money. Anything, up to this point he can do to make himself extra money, yeah. you know, he's done. So I think there is a credibility issue. And if he has a legitimate beef here, it's been marred and scarred by the fact that, you know, this guy's everywhere selling everything. You know, next he's going to be on TV selling ShamWow. You know, I mean, he is, he's been an opportunist his entire music career to take his fame as an advantage to make money. So, well, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think when no, you're trying to see the Tony people that, oh yeah, you made me a laughing song. Dude, you did that to yourself. First of all, it's, I mean, first of all, it's the Tonys. You know, out of more so than the Emmys, more so than the Grammys, they take that show very seriously. I mean, it's, you know, it's the only exposure live theater gets on American TV yep. a year. So, I tend, to, my, my sort of predetermined view of them is, and it, and it could be completely wrong, because maybe it's outsourced, I don't know. I don't think they screw around. And I don't think, like, this is our one show, we don't fuck this up, don't fuck with the Tonys. You know? Yeah. Um, because it is the only time that people get to see any of these things, or even hear the words theater and musical in a sentence. There's people that never go to live theater, that the yeah. only thing they know is what they get from the Tonys. So if this is their one spotlight of the year, I can't imagine they're going to do something this stupid. You on know. one level, so so what you're saying is, you know, on one level, was it revenge that Rock of Ages was even in the nomination process? 
that that Rock of Ages was even nominated for Best Musical? No, I think it wasn't nominated for Best Musical out of, you know, because they wanted it to be nominated for Best Musical. I just think that when they invited him, they're like, oh, it's going to be, you know, somebody else who understands that it's a musical and understands the importance of live theater. You know, someone, like, for example, if it's Sebastian Bach or Paul Stanley who have done Broadway, right, I don't think this happens. You know, they, who came from a metal wild rock yeah. background and done theater and get it. I don't think that happens, you know. But the fact that this is a guy that's sort of not new to the that's sort of new to the concept, you know, he probably thinks I'm performing on stage in across the board I'm performing on stage, not realizing that there's different types of Yeah worlds with that. And we should mention, it's an important point to mention that yeah, if if I if I'm not that familiar with Rock of Ages, but I will mention that the bands whose music they play are not actually involved in Rock of Ages. No. So uh, it's not like Poison has actually, you know, gone and played with the show. Cause I know, cause I know some people out there will point out to the fact that, that members of Green Day were involved in, in American Idiot, uh, and have appeared in it. Um, but this is a completely different thing where, uh, where the bands, most of the bands involved did not actually appear in the play. So, no. so that, that goes to the other argument of, well, the guys in the band didn't really know anything about show blocking. So anyway. Anyway. But I can easily see if you're in, in Poison, you know, you have, and you're a backing musician, you have a little more time to meet with the stage hands because you have to set up an instrument. You have yeah. to know where everything goes. Um, you have probably a little more sense of this goes here, this goes there, this moves here, this moves there than necessarily a singer would. I, I think you, I think you, uh, you could have stopped your sentence with a little more sense. Oh, I'm sorry. Full stop. I, I would actually like to apologize to some some indie people out there for actually knowing all of the members of Poison, but then again, fuck off. I just thought you were reading it on off of something. No, 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 no. I'll 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 admit that. I'll cop to that. Well, I I think we should move on because I I think by uh by law by international treaty a podcast can't spend too long <laughs> discussing anything having to do with Poison uh without being taken to the Hague. Oh, so, no, no, we'll bring up Bill Bib DeVoe soon enough. Oh, Jesus yeah, Christ. I was just about to do that. Oh, God. All right, so moving on for our own safety, we will Quickly. get... Yes, I know, it is time for, I think, the big topic. Uh, So the big topic is this. I have, I, I'm here to tell you about my brand new musical genre that I've come up with. Uh, I call it Acid Hopstep Techno House Rave Afrofusion. And I believe I've got probably two and a half weeks before someone comes up with alternative Acid Hopstep Techno House Rave Afrofusion. Or Neo. Uh, or Neo. Oh, see, Rob's already. Or post. <laughs> post Neo alternative as a, anyway, but the point being is that. Smooth. Smooth. Classic. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, remember when, remember when Hopstep Afrofusion was classic? Yeah. That's now on KTEL. All right. So, but the point being is that kids ask your parents. The point being is that, uh, cause, cause as you know, I've recently become uh, enamored with dubstep simply because it is chaotic music that really fits into the grooves in my brain. Uh, it is the equivalent of in Land of the Dead where they would use fireworks to distract the zombies. I use it to distract the 90% of my brain, <laughs> the part that makes me unable to speak, and the 90% of my brain that is useless to me when I'm trying to actually get work done. You know, the bit that goes squirrel and runs around and wants to paint things like squirrels. So, uh, but then Rob sends me this thing. Sorry. No, 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 not, not even, I'm not even talking about Big Gigantic. I'm talking about the hop step thing. 
So dubstep, I, I'm, I'm listening to dubstep for maybe three weeks. Now I know that being the captain slow of the music podcast, I, for all I know, dubstep has been around since 1988. I, I would, I would not no, know. If it helps you anyways, your evolution with it is similar to mine. Okay. Because I've, I've kind of known it was around. I listened to Burial and some of the Shackles and stuff, but right. I never really dug deep into it until Nero and Skrillex. Right. So it's the, it's the prodigy guys. Well, I know it's the prodigy. Yes, exactly. Well, the second, yes, it's there's, the first prodigy record. Yes, I there, know. Yeah. There, there's the, well, well, there you go. But but the point being is that, and, and that that goes to a point that I want to talk about in a minute. But so now you go from dubstep, and I swear to God, three weeks later, suddenly there's hopstep, which is apparently dubstep remixes of songs from the fifties. Uh, so Rob's sending me Mr. Sandman with a dubstep remix, and like, and and of course a drop, the 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 inevitable. Uh, yeah. roller coaster downfall thing that, you know, which, which in Mr. Postman just is all kinds of wrong. So, uh, but that, that got me thinking. Now, I remember a time when there, number one, there weren't so many musical genres, right? It was a big deal when suddenly you had, uh, well, we've got, you know, it, it's, it's like in the Blues Brothers where they say, well, what kind of music do you play here? We have both kinds, country and Western, right? It used to be that there was rock. And of course, there was jazz. You had your jazz section and blockbuster music. Yes, there used to be a blockbuster music. Kids ask your parents. Uh, there was a jazz section. There was a classical section. Maybe there used a, to be a blockbuster. Kids ask your parents. I know, and not just the Batman villain. Um, there was a blues section, maybe if you were lucky. But mostly there was like rock, and then a huge rock section with everything in it. And then there was an alternative section, eventually that spun off of that, where you just put everything that wasn't necessarily rock. And it was like that for a long time. Now it seems like, and maybe it's just me. <laughs> no, it's not. Now it, it was seems that like. It unconfusing period where both Steely Dan records and Pixie records lived together in harmony. <laughs> that was when the lion <laughs> laid down with the lamb. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I was just, I, it suddenly occurred to me that every three to four weeks, there's some, somebody has some new musical genre where they've basically taken for the most part an existing musical genre and either slapped a name on it um because i now that you mention it fat of the land is very proto dubstep uh yeah. that's a good call toughly actually the one before it is more so <laughs> oh, yeah, oh yeah. yeah 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 no i mean both of those so, uh, but you're right and the fat of the land was getting away from it. but it's oh, jilted like, i'm sorry jilted uh i yeah i have that i don't know why i didn't know the name anyway uh, my point being is that it seems like that people are either spinning off of an existing genre and slapping a hop or techno or something on the top of it, classic, smooth, whatever you guys are talking about, on there, or they're just taking something that already exists and putting a name on it so they can better market it. And and I'm like, what? I don't remember this happening. It seems to, again, Captain Slow here, but when the hell did this happen? Is it all marketing nonsense? Um, and are, is it going to speed up to the point where, uh, am, am, are we basically the equivalent of the musical equivalent of Ray Kurzweil? Are we talking about the musical singularity at which point musical genre creation is going to speed up to the point where it, it just, it, w there's one happening every second. Uh, and then who knows what happens? It'll be like the end of 2001. We'll go through the musical. Corona and come out the other side and be a giant planet-sized baby. 
I'm completely lost what I'm saying. Help me out, guys. What are we, what, what, when did this happen, first of all? When, when did this start to happen? Because I don't remember it happening. I just remember alternatives. Probably, I would then, probably say mid 90s. Okay. When, when, I think when, when the first sort of techno phase started to die. Uh, I think right when the, uh, the third Prodigy record, no, fourth Prodigy record fell off. Uh, probably the second, the, the Moby follow up, the play fell off. Uh, you started having subgenres. Okay. Um, you, basically when techno, which is the big blanket term, uh, basically when techno went back under the radar and wasn't mainstream and Madonna didn't have a sub label for it. Um, I think that then it sort of then you sort of go back to the drawing board and then uh, well, a lot, even, even a lot then, of the Detroit though. house stuff developed a lot of this and uh, a lot of the DJs from Detroit kind of played with it a bit and and re- reformatted. Go ahead, Rob. Well, I think I think you're right about the '90s, but here's here's the thing: um, house was kind of around, and then there was deep house, Chicago house, and yeah. Detroit house because the scenes were aesthetically different. And yeah, the Hacienda scene wasn't like the Detroit yeah, scene. So, so that, that, yeah, so there was a certain extent. But in the 90s, right, you had this this boom of, of first you had, um, you know, you had industrial music, which everyone sort of knew. And then you sort of had uh, techno. And then all of a sudden there's trance. And then there's house. And so you, you have that basic structure of, you know, then you had acid house. And which sort of came from New Beat. And like, do you guys know what New Beat is or my old? Okay. Never yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, um, I we do. will not tell Lidge about that. He will not look it up. His wife will not hate me for another reason. Um, kids Wikipedia, it works for you. New Beat. It's awesome. Anyway. New um, Beat. Enter. Oh, God. There, look up Acid Rock, you know. Um, wait, really quick. Fruity Pebbles Wedge. So, no, uh, go ahead. um, then I think All right, Barn. You, had, you had two, you had, you had three things happening at once. You had first the separation being made of what is hip hop and what is rap, right? Then you had in electronic music, you know, what's techno and what is trance and all this other stuff. And then in rock across the board, you had what is rock and what is grunge. And I think this all sort of happened at the same time. And at that point, the record industry had to sort of start separating when things happened. And then you'd have people from different genres mixing other records. You'd have a Cypress Hill remix of like a ministry record, or you'd have, um, you know, a Schooly D remix of something else. And that kind of started it. With the, with the birth of remix culture, I think, started this sort of transgender, or transgenre thing. Um, it, sort of like Pitbull remixing everyone. Yeah, kind of. And I think that started. And then I think with that sort of, happened but it was sort of controllable um then you had the onset of the internet and in many ways one of the worst things that happened is that music critics getting on the internet i'll wave a hand and freely blame when you're writing something you're trying to figure out a way that it's new or not like anything else before it or you're trying to, you know, you, you can only use the word innovative or interesting or different. So, says, so then they're like, well, I'm going to think of a clever double way, way to move things, you know. And uh, you start hyphenating terms and things. And then all it takes is one guy to write something, you know, uh, a core or a staff or a type of type of music. And then it just takes it. To, all it has to do is go from one one source writing it to get onto Pitchfork or Drone and Sound or a big thing and then it's then it's a label and 
that's where it kind of happens, I think. Like, I, I'm kind of amazed at just the sheer amount um, of how electronic music or electronic-based music has sort of happened. I, I sort of like how Moby just said, we just refer to it now as, what is it, e- EDM, electronic dance music? Is that how he yeah. kind of lumped it all? EDM, I kind yeah. of, I just kind of like that idea of just, I just call it electronica, you know, but now... Um, Outside of dubstep, I've I've been introduced to chill wave, love core, and you know I was, I'm like, what the fuck is? Yeah, that? everything's I mean, core. By the way, that's you. another. By the way, it's not just you. If that makes you feel better, I am even shaking my head, going, stop this now. By There's the way, really, is love core like remixing of psychedelic furs records? Is that what that is? No, well. For example, there's a band <laughs> from Atlanta called Is It Washed Up or Washed Out? They're on Sub Pop. They do the music for Portlandia. Yeah. I can't. Is it Washed Up or Washed Out? I can't remember. Washed Out. Washed Out. When I read a review of them, you know, I said, oh, I really like this band. I read a review. They referred to them as Chill Wave. And I'm like, okay, sure. But I'm, just, I'm not okay. going to use it. And then, you know, then you hear um, somebody describe the band, you know, I think Mickey and the Dove, Nicky and the Dove and some other stuff is, you know, oh, this is a um, a love core band or whatever. You know, and just like, oh, for God's sakes. You know? Yeah, well, um, and, and toughly to answer your question, love core are people who really like old uh, Stone Temple Pilots. Oh, okay. okay. Or Arthur, or, uh, or, uh, love record. Anyway, um, <laughs> Arthur Lee. But, there you go. You know, I mean, there's, there's even all these genres where I'm like, you know, where I'm DJing and they're like, oh, you got some dubstep. Great. Do you have any soul? Yeah. Do you have any old school soul? Yeah. You got any old school jams? Yeah. You got any funk? Yeah. Great. Then do you have, there, and I, I've been, I've been writing them down and I don't have the sheet in front of me. It's like, you know, the other one, you know, someone said, do you have some slow core or do you have, you know, <laughs> You know, do you have? Do you have any shoe metal? You know, new, someone you know, asked me. Someone asked me if I had like new metal. It's N U and then metal. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've at least heard of that. Yeah. You, you know, know, this is like the game where you know when you were a kid, you used to go to Thirty One Flavors every Wednesday when they put the yeah. new flavor out, and then you would. <laughs> I used to do that. You would check them to see which yes. flavors they actually had. Yes. I blame. I blame it all though. Outside of the thing with the nineties with the term acid jazz. When they started taking the word acid and jazz and putting it together, that's when it ended. Because a lot of the stuff in that genre was stuff that easily could have went in others. Like, you could put brand new heavies in Seoul. You know, really, you know. And then, you know, the idea of, and then jam bands. Because then, when you started lumping everything into, as much as I hate the genre, when you started just throwing stuff into jam bands, that's such a nebulous category that I could see a band wanting to sort of expand out of that and saying, no, we're not a jam band, we're this. The same thing with electronica, you know. There's so many bands that are synthesized or electronic-based that you want to sort of move a name for yourself and say, well, you know, we're 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 retrocore or electro. We're not, you know. Well, and and, and two things. Is like that, that sort of neo-New Order sound became right. known as electro, you know. It's like, fuck's sake, you know, stop this. Well, well, part of my thing is that two things spring to mind is that one, there are some subgenres that actually, to me, most of it, my problem with most of it is that I can't really tell the difference between one and another. It doesn't sound like anything new. Now, now, for example, let, let's just take a couple of examples. At least with dubstep for me, I can, I can tell the difference because there are certain aspects to the song that are novel enough where i can say okay yeah this makes this makes sense to me or uh the the style of it like the 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 nerd core um you know like two skinny jays and mc front a lot um the the topics that they're following uh, you know the style may not that 
be, be that much different. But the, with the topics that they're going, okay, I can kind of see that. But there's a lot of stuff that just feels like it, like you said, oh, it could have actually been soul or it could have been just rock or whatever. But I, I'm, I'm wondering also the marketing aspect of this. One of the things that, um, that is, is really good for marketing is you either want to be, you know, best, biggest or first. Um, and it's a lot easier to create your own, you know, part of what would have been the virtual blockbuster and go, Hey, we're, you know, shoe core, whatever it is, uh, the shoegazer, hardcore shoegazer movement. And we're, we're starting this movement over here. Aren't we the it's cool like kids? My bloody Valentine and Mazzy star formed something. Uh, I, that's probably a happened. Blob. That's <laughs> probably happened. And, and, and there actually is a Steve McQueen out there who could direct the music video. Um, <laughs> Oh my God. So, but I mean, uh, so it, it seems to me that it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's two things. It's wanting to be novel and be interesting. Um, you know, helped along by the media, like you said, Rob, where they, they want to be able to describe, cause I do this all the time. I mean, I used to run the joke about, uh, people would, uh, it never failed whenever I would say something like, Oh yes, well this is kind of like uh and I'm just making up something stupid. This that I could I would think of this as Quentin Tarantino's shirt tails or something. And it never failed some idiot would Quentin Tarantino never directed an episode of Shirt Tales. It's like I know that dickhead. Actually he yeah. did. That was when one of them was buried alive and oh wait, that was CSI, sorry. Um <laughs> CSI Shirt Tales. CSI Shirt Tales. I would watch the shit out of that. Uh but anyway, but but so it, it it seems like it seems like a kind of a perfect storm of marketing and and mm-hmm. bands wanting to be novel and and uh media wanting them to be novel. I mean, do, do or you trying to find some indelible fingerprint that they can put yeah. on it that makes sense? Like when you call a band Chill Wave, it's like okay, I get it. They have the electronic sort of DIY ethos of new wave, but it's a chill out sort of sound. I get that. Mm. That's great, but you know, just. Tell me that in a sentence. Don't put a word. I don't know. I mean, it's a double-edged sword because you do want to sort of have a, a sound that is instantly or a name that instantly describes what you're listening to, you know, um, that's catchy. But you also don't want to create a whole other genre. Like dubstep in and of itself is not necessarily the fairest name for the genre because it doesn't really sound like reggae. Well, no. And the step, I mean, I get the step because it's it, it's sort of a weird little step. I, I get it, but, you know. Dubstep though came out of what garage and grimecore, grimecore, and then which I other- never understood. What grime? What the hell is grimecore? Yeah, I mean stuff like you know, there's 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 trip hop, which is you know, yeah, massive attack, and right, right, and tricky, and, and yeah. then grimecore, I think, is kind of what they call tricky. You know, the stuff that's sort of like really dirty um, trip hop, from what I understand. Okay, but um, I just don't understand why they can't call it. Dirty trip hop. Well, but, well know, yeah. Whatever, well, well you know? my my thing is at least with with trip hop, like you said, with chill wave, you can kind of see the etymology of the word. I think yeah. that's. Uh, am I saying entomology? No, that's bugs. Um, the, of yeah. the word, yeah. Uh, but like chill wave, you can kind of go, oh, I can see what this is. But like grime, well, what the hell does that mean? Apart from, do you, do you not bathe? What are you? Uh, that does that make you a metal band? Is that? Does Tuffley know about you? Mm. Uh, or like, you know, dubstep, what the hell does that mean? I'm, I'm no, always they like, formed a band after Dragon Con. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, at least trip-hop makes sense to me. Loud metal. I've never understood <laughs> yeah. that. Of what? Loud step and metal. I've never understood why. Loud bands, step? Like, la- no, I've heard, I've heard bands like Metallica, right? Yeah. 
referred to as a metal band, but also a loud rock band. You know, it's like, okay, what's the line? Between? Yeah, what is the difference? I don't understand what. So there are some of the genres, sometimes they don't really think about these things. You right. Know? And I totally get that to a certain extent, Tuffley and I, um, and but for those of you that think it's a weird competition out there, you're sadly mistaken because we're it's not. But Tuffley and I are sort of charged with trying to find the next big thing and get it to some and make people aware of it. Right? If I'm wrong on any of this stuff, we speak up. So we try to actively know what the next thing is or what movement's coming so we can sort of, sort of keep our five listeners sort of informed, right? I don't really like, know what the labels are, though. I don't really keep up with that. And I, and right? I don't either. I mean, I, I try not to. But it's only when I read other online things, which is why I don't really read a lot of music blogs. Um, oh, by the way, while we're on this topic, happy 60th birthday at me. Oh, yeah. Because awesome. that fits with this so well. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it, it is the high-profile publications. There's, and especially in England, they love the label stuff. You know? Yeah. And to be fair, they almost have to over there because trying – How could you tell what, el- what what any of it is from anything else? The, the, the styles over there change so quickly that, you know, and the rain pours and there's a new genre. I mean, I get it, you know. Um, Farmcore, who would have thought? You know, um <laughs> So, you know, I get it, but it's just stop it. It's asinine, you know. Um, and I, I, music critics sometimes, we, we, we are, are at fault for a lot of this because we try to put a descriptive thing on a music form that will describe it in as few words as possible to someone who is not as into it as we are, right? But sometimes in the process of doing that, we forget the responsibility that our biggest job is to inform so instead of spelling it out and saying the gorillas sound like what would happen if, you know, Blur made a record with Danger Mouse or whatever, right? Or, or like with the new with, pop record? Yeah, or, right. or like with, um, with, the, with, the new, with the new gorillas when they make a record with Andre 3000. Like, this gorillas record sounds like what would happen if Blur made a record with Outcast. Instead of saying that, we take a shortcut and try to be clever. And in doing that, Sometimes, not all the times, we shortchange the reader because us trying to take a loophole verbally to describe something either misrepresents or mislabels a type of music. So I think a lot of this stuff sort of just happens out of the blue, you know. I mean, I've had tough discussions with Tuffley where I will refer to something as, you know, hairband or loud rock. And he's like, well, no, that's just, you know, that's an 80s glam thing, you know. And... So it's very easily you can write about a genre or a particular type of music that you don't understand and put a label on it that isn't accurate. Um, so it's a really tricky rope to walk. I just tend to rather lean towards describing it than making up things in terms of, of genre names. Because as, as clever as we want to be about making up bands, you know, if they're all bands from Denver and they're all doing really well, I could call it Snowcore, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> You know, for example, you have Mastodon and all these great loud rock bands coming out of Atlanta, right? Yeah. I don't call them Dixie Core. I just describe what they fucking sound like. I I just want to have a, a a subgenre called Core Core. Yeah. Actually, I think some of the guys in the Black Lips wouldn't object to being called Dixie Core. Actually, um, because you know you can put a lot of things in a Dixie cup. Um, <sighs> you know, so it's you know, and I. We have we have mumblecore. We you know, and everyone wanted to get out of. First it was alternative, then it became indie. So now everyone wants to branch out of the indie, out of being called indie, being called electronic, or being called rock. 
or being called rap. They want to sort of branch out of those sort of established genres. Like, you know, what is the difference between down-tempo and, for the average listener, what's the difference between down-tempo and trip-hop? You know, what is that? How do you explain that to someone? You know, so while we are looking ahead, trying to find out the next great record or the next great band we like or what cool thing we're going to listen to tomorrow, the process of labeling it, we fuck it all up. So stop it. So... Well, it's infuriating I'm with, trying to keep track of it. Yeah, I'm kind of with Rob with this, but uh, I will say this. Um, I do also blame meta tags on blogs. Yeah. Um, because let's be honest, you can't put sounds like Queen as a tag because that's basically everything. Um, <laughs> sounds like Queen if they had, you know, fancied, you know, McCartney, uh, the second McCartney record. Um, but no, I meta tags you have to put a subject in and you have to put in something people are searching for and i think this is what causes a lot of this at least the new flavor of this is well okay people are looking for you know dubstep so we can put dubstep in one corner of the blog tag um and then we can you know kind of it's like that thing from the electric company where they put words together <laughs> dub yes. step dubstep so, it's like it's like they're creating this for meta blog tags. So I'd have to also blame the internet. Um since since we're going with the, you know, three old guys talk about dubstep. Um so metal basically Raga. <laughs> metal so, Raga. So basically it's your fault, the internet. A metal raga actually sounds like a manga title. Sounds like a Muppet. It actually it really does. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a very special episode of Fraggle Rock. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, well, when Stark Industries came to Fraggle Rock. <laughs> Metal Raga. Oh, Jesus. Uh, ambient. So, so, so here's my question. So, so where do you see this going? Do you see this going the Moby route where it kind of like eventually breaks down and everything is called EDM or it goes back to being called rock or something? Or do you see this continuing to speed up until, as I said earlier, we hit some sort of musical singularity? Um, in which it just completely falls apart and everything's just music again. I mean, where do you see this going? Well, I, I think, think if we follow, oh, well, I think if we follow the DC Universe example, we'll just hit hyper time and just reset things four times. <laughs> <laughs> Crisis on infinite genres. By the way, so, so in that respect, we can also blame Grant Morrison, which is also better than blaming the internet. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was going to say a little of each, actually, because sometimes the genres are actually, they actually fit in a way that works. You know, like coming up with a genre shoegazer, you know, that's a very sort of clip. Yeah, you know, that's what this is. Wow, that's a great idea. You know, but just because you have a new style of music doesn't mean you have to birth a new genre every five minutes, you know, um, because at some point, you know, if Tuffling and I are talking to Widge about you know, uh, we'll say we're talking about Skrillex, right? And, you know, Tuffley could say, oh, they're a great dubstep band, blah, 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 blah. And I would just say, well, you know, technically not really dubstep. They're sort of techno dubstep, blah, 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 go on and on. And at some point, Widget just walks into the room, guys, it's a fucking record, and just walks away, you know? <laughs> yeah. See, I mean, and, and the only thing I like to think about is I weep for the BBC One presenters of the future. Uh, the Radio One <laughs> kids of the future are just going to be so fucking lost. What am I saying? What are you making me say? What is this on the page? <laughs> These aren't words. This is a Scrabble challenge. 
Yeah. Ah, Scrabble Core. <laughs> Scrabble Core. I like it. Basically, oh. you have a mumble core. You have a scrabble core. All all the lyrics are done from Scrabble games. It's kind of, it's kind of like a weird. Uh, it's like Hasbro meets the Barosian cut up method. Yeah, actually, lyrics. what I really want for for BBC Radio One is to have all day, all night a thing called Nighty Core, where all of their records are announced and back announced by Bill Nighy. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would pay good money for that. Actually, uh, I know it'd be awesome. Uh, but yeah. There you go. Uh, mer- uh, merchandise. It's the closest. It's the closest thing to a full day of Radio One presented by the ghost of John Peel you're ever going to get. I, I like. Now, I like the notion of Merchant Ivory Step, in which you take the soundtracks to Merchant Ivory films and remix <laughs> them with dubstep. Now I think though that's with Helena Bonham Carter on lead vocals. No, nah, well, she could. She, what she needs to do is she can basically like uh, do that sort of thing where. You have a not really a, a singer, but a narrator who who <laughs> says a few lines, and then you just repeat them over and over again. Uh, I think that would work. I think or that she would could work. Just be a, you know, she she's a Yelp core artist. She just sort of pops in every once in a while and squeals and then leaves. Yelp core. Yeah. <laughs> now, Juliet be, Lewis, you finally found your band. Go. Now, to be oh, fair, wow. uh, to bring this back into a sort of sense of <laughs> non bizarreness. Sorry, listener. Um, I think a certain extent of all the genres busting out and having different names and trying to sort of there's there's two points here. One is everybody wants to be ahead of the next guy, and by doing that, it, it's it's accelerating everything faster. In the same way that getting information has gotten faster because we have MP3s and videos and all these downloads that are just instantly at our at our disposal. Um, that advance of technology has sort of advanced this and made it sort of more and more of a problem because everything is faster to get a hold of and you don't have to have a movement. Like when rock and roll started, you know, it was rock and roll, but it built, it, you know, you had all these bands building up yeah. and, and a gradual change to what we knew as rock and roll. Now we don't really have the build up anymore. Something just comes out. It's instantly on the web in five minutes and boom, you got it. The other aspect of it though, too, is the sort of DIY ethos to music now where a guy can make an entire record on his computer <laughs> or in his bedroom. You know, has sort of made the, 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 we talked a little bit about this with Whitney Houston. It sort of shortened the, the candle, so to speak. You no longer have to like labor in being in a band for a long period of time, you know, touring and making seven inches and cassettes and all that to get yeah. out there. So if you can make one YouTube video and get like four million people to look at it, you're probably yeah. getting a record deal. And then with that, you know, bands like, 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 uh, you know, Huffamoose, for example, um, they're going to want to sort of label that something. They're going to so like, in their desire to get everything so instant and so fast that nobody sort of stops and thinks about the process of the creative process, what it's called, what it's named, are building up to something. You know, you can't build any traction with the genre. You know, Dubstep's been lucky and that's been able to sort of build up traction and develop different, you know, this this record leads to an, uh, this record, this record leads to this one. And you can go from A, B, C to D. Whereas some of the other stuff, there's so few bands in it or so few things that it just sort of goes away. Like the Riot Girl movement, for example, you know, you had all, you could, you could put Latigra next to Skinny, uh, Sleater Kenny, even though they were aesthetically different based on the ideas and the creation of the music and sort of the, uh, the politics and the ideals behind the, the music. That's kind of gone now. That's sort of, that's been replaced with, you know, what can we call it? Name it, slick it, polish it, boom, get it out there. 
And so I think that's part that that's part of what, what the symptom is of this. And I think everybody's you know we're so ADD as a culture in terms of like you know um, what's wrong with saying we're a rock and roll band anymore? We can't be a rock and roll band. We have to be an avant rock and roll band, or you know we have to be you know we have to be you know white sensitive male core. You know I mean it's, yeah <laughs> you know you just sort of have to move on honky core. Yeah, you know, you have to you have to call it something other than what it is. You know, I see a Elton John remix coming. Whereas, <laughs> Huffley and I will just say like, you know, the Kaiser Chiefs. It's a rock record. It's not a Brit pop record. It's not a British Invasion record. It's a rock record. You know, yeah. Or uh, with the exception, like if I'm talking about a rap record and I'm talking the difference between N.W.A. and De La Soul, then I make the determination. You know, right. But those kind of determinations were built up on an evolution of sound and ideas and a culture. And the that fact you don't sound like. And the fact that you know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. Whereas dubstep, you know, it grew. The origins of dubstep grew from like this sort of grungy, dirty electronic music that wasn't techno, wasn't house, wasn't really like anything before. So you could call it a movement because it is actually based on something that's like, well, you know, there really isn't anything like this, you know. But it's had a progression. And I think you almost need to make some sort of a label for the next quote unquote next big thing. You sort of need an evolutionary process. I mean, even if you trace from Elvis to the Beatles, there's an evolutionary process of how you got there, you know, uh, sonically. Or even if you go from like Elvis to the Kinks or Elvis to the Yardbirds or Elvis to Public Enemy, you can sort of trace where all that goes. Now you can't anymore. And I think that. We've cut out that step, and in many ways, it's hurt the music industry because it's basically cut the legs off of marketing people in music that sort of knew how to build up a band and present it and build a core audience. You know, now you don't have to build a core audience anymore. Your core audience, you know, they're there, and they don't necessarily go for lasting anymore. They they're not really interested in building a base audience for a band. They want to get as many records sold as they can, or as many downloads as they can, and it's done. And move on. And then when the next record comes, they just start all over again. They don't build from what they did previously. So I'm hoping I'm making sense and not turning this into a Christopher Hitchens discussion. But, um, <laughs> Rob 22. But yeah, so that's, that's kind of what my, my thought is on it. You know, we're all so excited about getting ahead of the curve and we've got so much technology and so much instantaneous information that it's really impossible anymore to get any traction in a musical form. Um, and it's sad. So. And everything's cross-pollinated so much because of that that we have to use distinctions to understand the cross-pollination. Right. And I, I was just uh, Googling. I would encourage anyone to uh, – uh, if you want to find some interesting diagrams that people have used to try to show <laughs> what goes to where and why, uh, just uh, just uh, Google – what was it? Music uh, Musical genre evolution. And I'm looking at one now, which is the evolution of dance music uh, across the ages. Although apparently there is a Goa trance, which I now have to look up. Uh, oh, that's yeah, that's that's kind of the opposite of a Biza trance. It's sort of this. It's like trance music, but it's got that sort of like Indian sort of um, tabla kind of thing going on. Yeah. Oh, I'm good with that. All right. So, so, so if you really like the Slumdog Millionaire soundtrack, but you also like your MIA as well, look that up. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right. Well. 
I, I think I, I think we should uh, move towards a, a resolution here. What what I'd like to do is uh, we'll go around the table, and I'd like to hear from each of you the the one musical genre that you are looking forward to that you expect to show up in the next uh, probably week or so. Um, so 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 toughly, what what is the something core step thing that you think is the next best thing? What is your prediction? I, I, I think the dubstep and the cores will all be uh will all be uh, mixed into a wonder drug called Halcyon. Halcyon? Yes. <laughs> that we that, just go all the way back. That is the just call it Halcyon. That that is the, the, the I think that thing needs to be the name of the planet that they all eventually <laughs> leave Earth and go to. Welcome to Halcyon. Happy birthday, enemy. That um, that, that uh, honestly, Halcyon needs to be the biggest fucking dance club on the planet, and that needs to happen like now. Uh, Rob, Rob, what what musical genre are you uh, would you like to predict is going to be huge? Well, first of all, Happy Birthday, Enemy. I'm looking at my friend's rejection letter now, fuckers. Anyway, <laughs> um, awesome. Sorry. Um, I I think though where you're gonna see it, much like Janelle Monae changed how we interpret what soul music is, mm. sort of. A few years ago. Yeah, she's soulcore. Think... What? Nothing. Keep going. Okay. Um, she's I7 th- soulcore. I think as friends of Spalding, it's sort of going to change. It's sort of, there's going to be sort of a genre of people sounding like Esmeralda Spalding now. I don't know what you call it, but that's going to birth something else now. Um, and I'm definitely serious in, in the next thing, and it completely throws a wrench into the podcast. Um, but there are some really interesting things going on with the sort of do-it-yourself music era has sort of caught up with classical music and you have people like John Adams and all these really sort of interesting new composers that are doing some interesting stuff, quote-unquote, within classical music that's not really classical, not really experimental sort of thing, and I don't know what you call it, but I think that's sort of a genre that's going to burst out. What do you sort of call that kind of... Uh, I would call that hooked on classics. Well, I, not necessarily. Sorry, I mean, I'm kidding. <laughs> God, kids, ask your parents. Um, <laughs> so true. But I, I, I do think though, if you're going to get, uh, you have to want to come up with something. You know, there is actually what uh, someone asked me about when I talked to him at, at, the, at DragonCon about when we were talking about um, what our, how we listen to all of the music as the three of us on a podcast, and right? How we sort it out, and he's like, you know. Um, He's like, and it was really fun. It was flattering. It was scary. He's like, you know, I have an iPod, and I don't know when people say, "What am I listening to?" I just call it coffee core because it's all the stuff you guys talk about. Because <laughs> you listen to all this different stuff. Coffee core, rock and your like, face. And I was like, you know, that's kind of cool because we all have Which, to get three... the website now. Oh God, hang on. <laughs> Keep going, Rob. Keep talking. <laughs> so. By the way, Coffee Core has been copyrighted by <laughs> One Task Industries, 2012. Uh, any use, any use, name, partial, partial sound and names contained therein are all the property of One Task Industries. By the way, you realize since we've mentioned Coffee Core, that just goes back to Paul McCartney again. So uh, uh, I was going to say Starbucks probably already. Yeah, it. yeah. But um, no, and I, and I thought that was really funny, and I was flattered. So that was kind of like that is the blanket term for anything that the three of us listen to. Coffee Core, but. Um, yeah, you know, I, where is it going? I, you know, I sort of, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated with this whole concept of what they call EBM because I can't really understand the difference between techno, some trance, and what they call electronic bo- um, body music, which used to be industrial music. So, no one 
surprisingly, in the year 12, has put apocalyptic in any type of music genre. So, you know, I it can't be drum and bass apocalyptica, but it could be, you know, um, I think there is a certain genre of apocalypse music, you know, that's just like, it spans different genres, different types of things. The, the basic core themes of it are, you know, uh, desolation, despair, end of the world. Dystopia, you know, yeah. Yeah. Like, like, well, well, there's a Killing Joke record out in about two months. I'll tell you about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and there's this other band called Joy Division, too. They coined the whole yeah. thing. Um, <laughs> I, but I think that sort of dystopia, you know, uh, dystopia. Yeah, this is dystopia. I don't know how to put the word dystopian and apocalyptic into a genre, but I'll think of it and I'll copy it. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, here you go. Rob, try this. Dystopop. Dystopopia. There you go. Yeah. That, that, that no, that, boy, that sounds too Catholic. Sorry. Yeah. Um, or it's the end of the world through no, litigation disto, about disto, yeah. just disto I don't know. Lipti- <laughs> disto liptica. That's it. Um, the it's, waste, not a part, the waste. it's not a, mu- it's not a muscle in your nose. It's actually a musical genre. Um, hip hop ellipse. Yeah. <laughs> hip hop ellipse. Oh Jesus. Um, yeah. It takes a nation of three to hold us back. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what I would, would do for a genre. So, you know, I'm trying to keep track of the next big thing. You know, uh, which has the easy thing because, you know, he always jokes that he just sort of rides behind whatever tough thing I suggest him, but he used to sit in the back seat with the sunglasses and the, and the wind blowing in his face, which tough thing I have to sit in the front seat and navigate through all this shit. So. <laughs> you picking that up, are you? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, so, the So you people... realize you've made me check off in this discussion. So. <laughs> No, you are not Chekhov. But you're not Sulu either. I want to make Which that Which actually goes clear. back to Davy Jones. Just kidding. Um, oh, God. Now, to be fair, um, the real people that have to suffer through this are our wives that just are like, what have you brought into my home? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've learned I just, I just really can't play dubstep in, in front of, uh, of, of Cosette. She just doesn't. And I, and I can't either. Yeah. And then when I start, whenever I type in a band, it's like, you know, Someone's got a wife that doesn't want to hear that shit in your house. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. All right. Well, well. Here, here is the musical genre that I think is going to hit it big, and I call it mumble step. And what, <laughs> and what, what it is is basically the album is going to be just me before I have my coffee, because that's basically uh, describes me. And then, or, um, and then Danger Mouse will remix it. No, it's any it's any electronic dance record made by Tom York or um, <laughs> Michael Stipe. Oh God, Michael Stipe doing electronic dance music. Oh Jesus! Who else mumbles toughly? Come on, help me here. Um, yeah. Oh, Dylan, Bob Dylan doing. Dance oh records. yes, yes. I want to see Dylan do a dubstep record, man. Oh my okay. God! When we get off the podcast, you guys can just type in the words Bob Dylan and dubstep, and I'm gonna lecture. I warned you. <laughs> oh God! Because anything you will have thought of is there. Yep. <laughs> a, there is a guy that's making dubstep versions of the of the Enigma records, and that's kind of interesting. But yeah. Uh, well, see that I could see happening better than say Blonde on Blonde. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Be warned. Have you heard the ACDC dubstep, dubstep oh, mixes yet? Jesus Christ. Those uh, are actually not bad. I mean, Thunderstruck is probably built for that sort of thing. So, you know. Uh, all right. Well, listen, on that bombshell. New beat. I'm bringing it back. New beat, kids. Look it up. <laughs> <laughs>
right, well, I thought, well, I looked it up actually in Wikipedia, and it it seems like again I was listening to that, and I didn't even know I was listening to it. Yeah. So go figure. Uh, based on who they're citing uh, are acts that could be classified as new beats. Um, so, all right. So on on uh, now that all of you are typing in Bob Dylan and dubstep into Google and hurting Sorry. yourselves, uh, and you can blame Rob. Uh, we no, will. We we will we will say goodbye for another episode of the soundboard and we'll be returning uh next month with God knows what else. Um the only thing I would mention is apart from uh since since you can't listen to Paul McCartney on Spotify anymore, should you desire to go and purchase any anything, much less uh Beatles or Paul McCartney, you can do so through going to the Amazon website. If you go to needcoffee.com slash Amazon um, use that, save that link, uh, and when you use it to buy things through Amazon, we get kickbacks for it, which helps pay for things like this podcast. Uh, and uh, if you're across the pond, don't worry, you're covered too. Needcoffee.com slash Amazon UK. Uh, save that as a bookmark somewhere in your browser and use that for Amazon, and uh, and you'll be helping us out greatly. So any of the music that you want to snag from there, do so, uh, whether it's a 99-cent MP3 or one of those crazy $999 speakers. So... And remember, when you're holding your grandkids on your knee and they ask you, Granddad, when did you hear mumble stuff? Then you can tell them to this very day. Yes, you, and, and, and as all part of a subgenre of, of coffee core. TM. <laughs> Bye, Keep folks. Get money. Bye, Bye. folks. <laughs> Happy 10th birthday, BBC Six Music. Bye. Bye. Bye.